You're listening to the Live Free Now podcast, bringing you the news, views, tips, and tools you can use to live a free, prosperous, and healthy life. Find us online at livefreenow.show. And now your host, John Bush. wake up to a new normal today and life is slowly grinding to a halt. Now masks are becoming the new normal. Americans are facing a new normal, one that may include losing their jobs, losing their income, and even losing their health insurance. I don't think we get back to normal. I think we get back or we, we, we get to a new normal. It's time to reject the new normal. Now is the historical moments of time not only to fight severe virus, but to shape the system. It's time to reject the Great Reset. It's time to support the People's Reset. It's time for the Greater Reset. From January 25th to the 29th, journalists, activists, researchers, and advocates are hosting the Greater Reset Activation a five-day event dedicated to offering an alternative to the World Economic Forum's top-down, centralized, authoritarian vision. Our desire is to help all people find community and liberty by providing practical steps and knowledge for co-creating a world that respects individual liberty, bodily autonomy, and choice. The Greater Reset is the world's collective response to the World Economic Forum's initiative, The Great Reset. We invite you to join us for five days of discussion about the diverse opportunities available for those who seek to live in harmony with humanity and the planet while respecting our innate freedom. Each day is dedicated to a different domain and provides solutions to the WEF's vision. Day one is dedicated to the Agora and decentralized economics. Tuesday the 26th will focus on health and education. Day three will focus on nature, permaculture, and regenerative agriculture. Thursday the 28th will highlight the liberating side of digital technology, including encryption, blockchain, and decentralized autonomous organizations. On Friday, January 29th, we will end the event by showcasing examples of intentional communities, freedom cells, and community organizing. Don't miss out on this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to hear from some of the most powerful speakers in the world with a focus on solutions. We encourage everyone to organize local watch parties in your area using freedomcells.org. Also, find out more about the Greater Getaway in-person event in Zihuatanejo, Mexico. Visit thegreaterreset.org for more information. Here we are. We're live. Day six. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing. I'm doing. He's doing well. You Just are been, you back in uh, Moriela? Yeah, I'm back Morelia. in Morelia. Morelia, we're back here in home in the home studio, and uh, things are a little less hectic here. Uh, how's it been for you, man? Did you enjoy your day off? I did. I, I did a whole lot of nothing. Did some cleaning around the house and some relaxing and a little bit of integrating, and I followed up on a lot of the, the chat there in the Telegram group and all over the place, and I, I noticed that a lot of people are feeling really activated, which was the goal. So I, I think... I think we got the message across and I think people really resonated with what all the speakers had to say. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been doing the same thing, kind of checking out. I've been getting emails from lots of supportive people. We've been checking out the Telegram. Uh, we had more Spanish translations done. We almost have all of the talks translated to Spanish. That's pretty cool. Again, just totally volunteers. 
we have two talks now translated to German, uh, Rosa Corey and Charles Eisenstein. We put those on the Odyssey channel this morning. I mean, I've just been blown away by how everybody's responded the past five days. I even saw somebody post on Telegram that they were having uh, greater reset withdrawals yesterday because we didn't do <laughs> Right on. Well, they can live the greater reset. They don't need the program. It's just, it's all about taking it and applying it in, in their lives. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, let's, let's talk a little bit about it, John, because we've got five speakers, five more speakers today. And I guess the kind of idea with this, at least for me, was we had so many people reach out. So many people reach out once they heard about the greater reset and say, hey, I know this person who would be great for it, or I think I would be great for it. And lots of the people had, you know, really powerful things to share and solutions, but you know, we tried to cram everything in five days. And then in the end, it seemed like, well, we've got another handful of awesome people here who have uh, great messages to share. Why not do a bonus day? And so today is kind of like more of a holistic look at things. You know, day one was economics, day two, health and education, and then uh, permaculture and nature, then technology, and then day five, community. Today is going to sort of touch on each of those aspects. We have some teacher, some speakers are going to be talking about permaculture. Some they are going to be talking about entrepreneurship and how that relates to the food supply. Uh, we're going to have uh, Dr. Will Tuttle speaking from a vegan perspective, but also kind of about the misinterpretations, I think you'd say, with some of the vegan community and, and hopefully just some inspiring words in general. Uh, then we also got Christina Hildebrand, who's with uh, talking about vaccines and choice, a very important issue right now. And then we'll end with Foster Gamble of the Thrive Movement, who has just really been kind of taking on what we've been doing with the Freedom Cell Movement and embracing it, as well as other solutions that he's promoting. And so we've got lots of information to share over the next three and a half hours. And I think, John, what I'm most excited about is that because we're doing it today at 12 central, six hours ahead of where what time we normally do it, we've got people who I see already saying, hey, what's up from Switzerland and from Sweden? So our friends in the UK and Europe and then parts of Asia are still awake and are watching with us today, as well as our friends in the US and, and you know all across North America. Yeah, it really is a global, a global movement and a global network. And that's something that's super duper excited. I remember exciting. I remember my activism just started off in Austin. And then the mother of my kids kind of pushed me out to go travel around the country. And now working with you, it, this Freedom Cell thing, the Greater Reset, it's all turned global. And it's not just different countries, but I really appreciate the different perspectives. For example, the Greater Reset chat on Telegram, there was a lot of back and forth about veganism after Tuesday or after Wednesday when we heard from Jack and Christian and Marjorie, all of whom are into animal livestock and the the harmonious nature and relationship that we can have with animals. Well, a lot of people are frustrated about that. Well, today we're going to be hearing from someone that presents from a vegan perspective. So the diversity of thought and opinion, I think, is really important. And one thing that I think we would really benefit from as a society is uh, an acceptance of differences and an acceptance of different viewpoints. And then let's just really focus on and hone in on that, which we agree on, right? Let's try to respect each other's differences and unique individuality and really center in on that, which we agree on. And I think when we can find that common ground and unite on similar purposes, it really enhances our effectiveness for, for bringing about change. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think that that is, it is important to remember because We've had people, not only when it comes to vegan issues, but people talking about, say, the, the view of whether we're dealing with global warming or global cooling. And, you know, people who think that UBI, universal basic income, is a really good thing. And other people who are very much against it. Oh, yeah. It. That was another one. 
we've had all these opinions presented in the last week, and that is what we we set out to do. We didn't want this to just be a here or the only, you know, everybody's going to agree on the same thing, or this is the one solution. We want you listening at home and those of you who are going to be watching this afterwards to uh, really take in the ideas and see how they work best for you. Um, I do want to do just a couple of house cleaning items, John, before we get to our first speaker. One thing is we were just checking this morning. We had over, what, 150,000 viewers throughout the week on the website itself, just on the website, not counting, you know, Facebook, DLive, Float, and then the uploads to Odyssey, the uploads to Float. And then, you know, we've got the full streams on Minds. We've got, I mean, it's all over the Internet. We've been trying to do our best to make sure with every email, with every post we're putting on the Telegram channel and on our social media that it's very easy. And if you visit thegreaterreset.org now, you'll see replays for all day five we've uploaded them let me see if i can just share that on the screen real quick we've uploaded all of them our um our producer and webmaster ramiro has been working hard to make sure that everything is up to date as possible so if you're not watching it live that's fine everything is posted there for you we've got the convenient links here at the top you can find all of our recordings and uploads the individual talks on our channels here and we do recommend signing up for our email list because if you didn't hear the other day, we are doing another event, May 25th through the 28th, in-person event, as well as, you know, virtual hybrid event, whenever the World Economic Forum is meeting again. This is this past week they met for like a digital virtual week, but they have now announced that in May they're going to be actually having their official in-person event. So we want to counter that as well and offer a narrative. And, uh, you know, there's going to be some more events coming up in the meantime that we'll, we'll share about in the coming days. But, yes, you can find all of the archives. You can find all the five days. Uh, loaded up and just like the previous days today after we wrap up i'll do my best to get everything edited we'll upload them and then you'll have all six days available on our website on our channels for free and then we're going to be moving forward we have some really exciting things so we hope that everybody who's enjoyed the last week will stay plugged into our channels in the coming days because this is an activation and this is the beginning of a, of a larger movement we've realized as john was saying that we've got this international movement now that we have helped cultivate and that we are a part of really it's all of you guys but we don't want this to go away we don't want this to disappear we won't don't want to say okay well we did our six days and wish you well and hope you're you know you do you do good on your own we want to stay together as a community and i just want to reemphasize, and you'll hear this again throughout today that Wherever you're at right now, wherever you're at economically, when it comes to gardening, to community, to your health, to your education, to your digital technology, uh, wherever you're at today or you're starting with this week, think of this as the beginning. This is you getting activated. And now think of what goals can you set in the next four months when we meet again in person and online? And what goals can you and your community and your, your family members and those of you who are having watch parties, let's really think about that today, how we can get activated and move forward uh, in, a, in a good way. Uh, anything else you want to add, John, before we get to our first speaker? No, I just want to shout out you and Romero uh, and all the work that you guys. I know y'all have been doing a lot of behind-the-scenes work. Not only did y'all host that big event, but y'all have been putting up all the content. So I'm just really impressed with the level of action that y'all are taking. And I'm also super excited about the level of action that I see everyone that's been tuning in taking. A lot of people are setting goals. A lot of people are motivated and re-energized. Some people say that this was the light that they needed to lift themselves out of darkness. So let's all stay connected. Let's stay together. And let's keep up the good work. 
Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys. Well, let's get into our talks for today. We have five speakers to present to you over the next three and a half hours. We're really excited about that. Our first speaker is somebody that I've only recently got connected with, and so I'm excited to hear from her and see what she has to share. But she is the creator of something that is kind of emerging at this really crucial moment. It's called Deplanty, a global food sharing and exchange platform. She's going to tell us about that and much more today. Please welcome to our stage, our virtual stage, Teresa Montanino. Hi there. How are you? Um, let me just uh, hold on a second here. I'm going to cut out of this thing here. And uh, I'm going to uh, see if I can maybe share my screen. Uh, see if it comes up. If it's valid here. So I'm, uh, well, I'll just uh, introduce myself while I'm trying to get this sorted out. Thank you so much. I want to thank Derek. I want to thank all of the organizers in this. I want to thank you guys for wanting to be motivated, for being part of uh, all of our family that we're creating right now, going forward into solutions. I think the time, you know, we've had lots of time and and lots of, um, you know, experiences to think about this, to see what's happening, how it was happening, how horrible it is, how great it is. And I think, you know, it's kind of time just to roll up the sleeves and, and get going on this thing. If we're going to create a world that we want to live in together, we have to create a world that we want to live in together. We kind of have to get going on this. So I just want to thank you for being here. I want to thank you for being interested in this. And I'm sure that you're already, you know, some of you out there are already doing things. This is just adding one more kind of tool to the shed of what we've got. Um, so I want to just tell you a little bit about myself. I uh, have a big background. I've got I've got a lot of things in my background, but I guess the most important thing that helped me to wake up in my experiences was going from North America, particularly Canada, to uh, Ecuador and, and particularly Galapagos. So I was just, you know, this was about 15 years ago. I was really frustrated, really uh, looking around me. Uh, I had an experience that helped me just kind of see clearly things that were going on and I didn't like what I was seeing. And I kind of thought, you know what, there's got to be a better way to do this. It just felt wrong to be in downtown Toronto, you know, going to work at a corporate job every day. Something was off about it. I, I was very happy with it before, but something just almost like, you know, when birds are getting a signal that they need to go in a certain direction, they get that irritation inside. And that's what was happening with me. I was really feeling irritated, would go into work, wasn't happy. And in a place where I was, you know, normally extremely happy. So I followed the calling, which was actually what it was, and uh, I and I want to really uh, not. I want to emphasize this. You know, I think a lot of people right now, especially right now with what chat was happening, they're feeling this pull. You know, they're feeling this tug, and we have been disconnected from ourselves. You know, definitely being disconnected from the land, as I'm going to talk about later on, and what you've heard, I'm sure. You know, during the talks all throughout the week that's going to cause you to really doubt. It's going to cause you perhaps not to listen 100% to what, what's pulling at you. So it was really, really, you know, a tough decision to make. I mean, leaving, you know, this great house that I had, this great life, this great job that I had, even this great relationship that I thought was filling to be pulled towards this, this island in the middle of nowhere, this group of islands in the middle of nowhere. But I did it. You know, I, I stepped off uh, the 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 side of the cliff, and I just literally went, and 
to be honest with you, one of the major uh, principles of resiliency um, is not only just community, but it's also courage. So in order to be resilient together, in order to create a community, we do have to have that courage. And that's a tough step for a lot of people because you're going from something you know to something you don't. But I can say as someone who did it, it's scary, but it's well, well worth it. If you really feel that call, just do it. So I jumped off the cliff and I and I spent 15 years in, in a community. I became part of a community that I didn't even know I was missing. And I really understood what community was on a deep level. These islands were fishing islands, very rustic. There was no television when I got there, no lighting in the evenings when I got there. It was just you and nature. And uh, I know that, you know, we've had speakers talk about farmers, you know, small farmers, especially who are going back to the land, they really want to be disconnected from electricity, from anything electronic to really gain that full connection. And I do honestly have to say, even though there is a balance, and we're going to talk about that later, I think the key is to really disconnect for a while. You really do have to get out of your environment and go to somewhere purely based in nature. So you really can fine tune that instinct that you have. So in doing and doing that, I started thinking about setting up this place, and I was really thinking about doing it on the islands, uh, where we could all get together, where people could come and learn, where they can, you know, get inspired by all this great stuff that I was learning in, in, in relationship to the environment, just literally engaging with me and the environment and me and other people in a very honest, innocent way. I kind of wanted to share that, and, and I felt like it could be a bit of a rehab center, you know, for people coming out of other cultures and economies and just coming to a place that you really can have that space to do that for yourself. So you, when you go back, you're at a different state. So I was really thinking about a physical space for many, many years. And honestly, I tried many times. I've got some, you know, got some variations of it going. I still live there. You know, I still go back and forth and I still have a place there. But what I realized is, uh, you know, it wasn't the answer. Just there was something stopping me from going ahead and building a physical building, a physical space where people could come to and, and you know, be rehab tourists, basically, <laughs> from their lives. Uh, so what happened during the COVID crisis, I mean, this was brewing even before the COVID crisis, obviously, and the year before, I was really starting to think about how can I really, how can, what can I do to connect? You know, I really felt like my community's out there. I, people around me at the time were not, uh, you know, jiving with what I was thinking, couldn't find a lot of uh, support or common interests, you know, because I was the only one that deplugged basically from that society, from my circle. Everyone else I knew was still plugged in. So I kind of kept thinking, you know, there's there's got to be more people out there, but how do I find them and what do I do? You know, how, how do we all get together? So during the COVID crisis, I had about, you know, four months of lockdown to just think about this. And, and a brilliant idea hit me, which is it's not a physical space that I was trying to create. It's actually harnessing the power of the Internet for us. You know, I, I know that we've got so many bad misconceptions around technology. And, you know, there's a lot of really weird things happening. But to be honest with you, why can't we harness what we've got and use it for reciprocity? Why can't we harness what we've got and use it for unity? Because I think that's probably, you know, uh, something that's very feasible. So I came up with this idea of putting this concept online. 
And it transformed because as I was here, I spent the last three years actually living back in Canada. I came back here and I could not, uh, for the life of me, find enough produce to eat that was, you know, as fresh as what I had in Galapagos. My whole eating pattern changed based on where I lived and based on what I had available to me. And I'm in a first world civilized country, okay? And I struggled, struggled trying to find produce that was nutritious. Even though I was eating organic food and I had access to some of it, in the area where I live, it's, it happens to be an industrial farming area and there's a lot of toxicity around and it's a livestock agricultural, you know, factory farming area. Unfortunately, so completely not aligned with what my beliefs are at all, but I could not for the life of me find produce. So I thought, you know what, I just want to put something on, on, on the Internet. I want to know in one place where all of this stuff is. You know, where do I find this good food and, and how do I go about getting it? And then it expanded from there. So Be Planty right now is basically a place where all of us scattered all over and, you know, globalization can be a dirty word, but we can also, again, use it to our advantage. So globalization can also mean connecting. You know, we need to connect with each other. So it's a place where you go online. If you are growing food, if you're growing sustainable, organic, you know, uh, nutrient-rich, non-GMO, completely as, as pure to the land as you can, if you're growing that type of food, then we want to connect you with people who are doing it. I'm growing that kind of food. I have my own greenhouse and I'm doing the same. And the concept is to expand beyond farms and connecting them to people, but also taking it to neighborhoods. So why can't we? We have all this land available. You know, we have all this space. Why can't we all grow food? Why can't we all create small farms? because we're not all going to be able to, to create food for each other. I can't create everything that 10 people needs potentially, but in combination with each other in a neighborhood, in a city, if we all know what we're growing, we can grow different things and we can become a collective. And that doesn't have to be a utopia. It doesn't have to be something that, you know, uh, an economist would scoff at or laugh at historically. It can be a seentopia, a seetopia is where a place where food grows, that's it. So it's a new kind of concept. It's beyond utopia. It's something that's much more practical. And it's something that most of us are already doing. There's a lot of us in this community that are already there. We're already finding you know, ways to do this. The only kicker is, basically the trick is, how do we connect? So it's not enough for one you know, couple to grow food on their farm and it's organically raised or very, you know, sustainably raised. They raise it in a healthy way, even if they don't have the certification. And they're providing, you know, they're they're getting their produce shipped out to people or they're providing boxes to people in their homes. That's actually not enough. We're not going to be able to sustain ourselves doing that. And that is a bit of a centric model. It's already kind of based on this this idea of we have to, food comes to us. We don't actually go and find our food anymore. And that's a complete falsehood. If you, you know, I don't, I don't, uh, it kind of stuns me when we think about this, but I don't know. After being born, you know, after being a baby, at what point in any species 
does food just come directly to your mouth? And, you know, you don't have to do a thing about it. You just, you, you kind of just sit there and, and, and food is right there. And that's basically the concept of supermarkets. You know, we're getting food grown from all over and it comes to our doorstep. That's actually not a sustainable, nor is it a real model. That's a bit of a utopia. It's a dystopia, obviously. But we've got to get away from that concept because that's no longer valid anymore. We need to continue to go to food. There's a work that's involved. There's an evolution that's involved in going towards food to actually create it, you know, to sustain it, to harvest it. There's some happens in the process and it creates us in a different way. It creates the seeds that we're using in a different way. The land becomes different because there's that, that interaction. We're engaging with something. We're not just using something. So I think be planty really for me was that it was more, let's engage with something. Let's not just touch it. Let's not just, you know, go to the store and pick up something in a plastic bag that says organic peppers. You know, how do I know if that's organic? Where do where does that come from? Which of the five, you know, multinational multinational corporations that produce about 80% of the world's, you know, of the US's food, which of those corporations made this? And how did they make it? You know, was there any process of sacredness there? Was there anything that caused evolution to spark? Or was that just you know, something that bypassed all of the natural laws. So be planty can really put us back in touch with each other and with the land. And in order to, to kind of, you know, connect on be planty, you, we're going to be able to slowly, slowly, slowly take back the land because we're going to know where we are. We're going to be able to see where each of us is, what each of us is doing. We need that network. We need to create those synapses between us, because we can't stay isolated in little, you know, centers here and there. That's already what's happened to the land. That's already the model of what industrialized farming has done to us. We're already in little pockets and we need to expand those pockets. We need to support each other and make those connections between the pockets so that we can take over. We can create roots, you know, we can create uh, bridges between one isolated pocket to another. So that's what, that's basically the concept of replanting. And uh, I, I think uh, I only have a certain amount of time here, but I'm going to see if, uh, let's see if I can actually share my screen with you and see if I can, I want to just show you some pictures here, some images. And you're going to have to forgive me, but uh, if I play this, it will actually play uh, too quickly. So I'm just going to show you some major images, and uh, you can you can get a, a, a glimpse of what I'm saying. So, okay. So you basically see this picture here. Okay. So this is what this is what I'm basically talking about here. This is the human brain. Okay, so you can see, obviously, we know there's basically a web of neurons, you know, and it's gorgeous. It's organized, it's coherent. 
It's interconnected. T Teresa, we're, we're not seeing yeah. your screen at the moment. If you, oh, if you're you not? Wanna, no, it's not showing for us. But if you want to try to click share screen again, our producer will add it to the screen uh, once it pops okay. up. It's not showing up for us yet. I just wanted to pop in and let you know that. So I'm saying share screen. Uh, okay. There we go. Can you see it now? Is that coming in? Yes, it's coming on now. Yeah? Okay. So you can just see how gorgeous this is. So this is our human brain, okay? This is this right here is our potential. This is how many connections we have going on in our head at, at any given moment. It's gorgeous. It's vibrant. Right? So you can really see the interconnectedness there. We have we are interconnected even from within. You know, it's it's something that's innate, innate in us. So I want to show you a few other pictures here. So this is uh, the migratory pattern of birds. So just to show you what nature is doing, okay? So this is what it looks like on a large scale. So you can kind of see the, the movements that are happening on a, on a fairly large scale there. Again, the neural networks. This is a, this is a large scale happening in our own brains right now. Again, the neural networks. These are other, these are more globalized migratory bird patterns. So just, just take a guess at what this is. So we go from migratory bird patterns, you know, looking like this kind of rivers and fluctuating. And then we go to this, which is our flight patterns, our, our travel flight patterns. So you can see already how disconnected it is. There's a lot of things happening concentric, really centered in one area and centered. So that doesn't look healthy. That's again, travel patterns in the US. You can see how things are mostly concentrated on one side. It's not balanced, it's not coherent. And this is world food distribution. So you can see how, where's the flow? Where's the, where's the elegance of that? Again, world food distribution, uh, sorry, a distribution of food, but in the US, very similar to the flight patterns. And this was a study done by the University of Illinois. So they, they were trying to find out farm, uh, farm to table. So, uh, you know, where was the food from farms going to which tables? Where, where, where was the transportation happening? Where were they going from and where were they going to? So this is basically what it looks like. I mean, that, that doesn't look connected at all, really. It's, it's, it's intense. It's dense in some areas. But it's very, there's no rhyme or reason to this. It almost looks like a diseased cell would look. That's a, that's a, a very linear breakdown of it. And then we have us. You know, so if we have the potential for this, if this is what we're doing innately, then what do you think that's going to do to us? You know, even as a, even as a society, I mean, we've got the potential for more. We, we know how to do this. We know how to connect. We just need the pathways to do it. And so I wanted to create a way that we can start. And it's not the only way. There's obviously, you know, during this, this week, you've heard many different solutions. This is one more solution to get us to unite because there's strength in numbers. 
And the more of us that are coherent and the more of us that are doing this and the more we know about it, the more inspired we're going to get, you know, the more inspired, the more cohesive and organized we can become and we can start producing food for ourselves. So this just to show you again, this is uh, the same map, you know, as this, but basically nine centers, mostly concentrated in California, are producing the majority of the food for the U.S., you know, how does that work? Is that really working for the, spe the other species that are living on the planet? You know, is that working for us? It's obviously not. There's obviously, you know, there's things that we, we can tell that aren't, aren't really working. So now there's other models. Basically, there was a concept, you know, that I was looking into a while back, and it was called the Hanging Gardens of Barcelona. So another group, a very innovative group, did a study so this is just kind of saying, okay, what does what does this concept of neighborhood, you know, city farming look like and, and connecting it to the rural areas, not having there be city and rural, having there be food, you know, having there be us with food, because that's what we do. <laughs> nothing about what we, nothing about our need of food has changed in, over the millennia. We still need food as much as our ancestors did, you know, as much as anybody has ever needed it. And the way that we that we're making food, the way that we're creating food and distributing it is is being shaped apart from nature. But yet we are shaped by food. So it's much more healthy. It's much more sane to start thinking about this concept of we need to shape our cities around food. Food has to be the centerpiece of our lives. It was the centerpiece, you know, in the in the early tribes. They were, their life was centered around food. Most of their activity was gathering food or hunting for food. And that was an evolutionary process. They learned, you know, they learned about their area. They learned about their interaction with the ecosystem. They were, they were, um, the animals around them were learning. The plants around them were learning based on what they were gathering. So everything was an evolution. But if we, if we kind of take everything and put it into one place or into a few different centers, then we're going to, we're going to have that, that, uh, that kind of imbalance, you know, we're, we're not going to be learning anything. I, I you know, sometimes I, I know that this community probably looks around every once in a while. I know I do. And I kind of think this is where we're at. This is, this is evolution. Like really after so much time has passed, nothing's really changed. You know, we, we're not doing anything any better. What's, what's wrong with this system, you know? So uh, I feel like now's the time, you know, when we get back to the land, when we're not disconnected from it, when we have food at the centerpiece, that's where true evolution happens. That's where we actually make the leaps and rounds of progress. So this particular example here is called the Barcelona Hanging Garden. And it's just, it's a project, you know, it hasn't really happened, but this is kind of what their idea, you know, high technology, obviously, this is their way of creating a sustainable Barcelona. So this is what it would have to look like in order to sustain the food, the city with its own food, for it to be completely independent, have its own food. This is what you'd have to have. You know, that's not attractive, right? That How does that help other species? So there's a lot of food on, on walls and on, on you know, uh, building tops, but is that really an ecosystem that's that's helping anybody else or any other species on the planet? Probably not. So I don't feel like high tech is the answer. I feel more like it's time for uh, uh, really transforming how we think about food and how we do food. I, I believe that food is at the center of our lives 
and we we are shaping ourselves around food and to take it out of that model really creates the dysfunction that we're seeing and a lot of potentially even um, mental illness because we're not connecting with the nutrients that we need. And if we put it back in our hands, if I go to my neighbor, you know, if I can trust enough that my neighbor is going to grow something that I can eat, you know, and that's, that's a big step there because right now we're disconnected. You know, if I go back and live in Galapagos, great community, everyone's connected. The fisherman goes to get fish, gives it to me. I give them something else. You know, it's, it's a system. It's a system of exchange of reciprocity, not even barter. It's a credit system, right? It's, it's something that's based on, I'm going to give you something today because I know you're going to give me something tomorrow. And there doesn't have to be anything else exchanged other than, other than the goodwill there. But if we're, if we're not going to, you know, be living on those isolated islands, which obviously is not realistic, we've got to have trust. We've got to learn and re reconnect, reunite with each other and have trust and, and unite rather than divide. So I'm, that means I'm going to have to, you know, grow food, which is what I'm doing already. I'm going to have to share it potentially, you know, and trust that my neighbor three houses down is also going to be, you know, it's got my back. So, you know, that means I have to go over there, pick it out of the garden, you know, or she brings it over here and I my garden and pick my food and give it to her or him, you know, so there's going to be an exchange of food happening on a different level. And uh, it's the only way I think that we can get reunited again and, and build that trust in community. And it doesn't have to be small pockets. You know, it doesn't have to be just small farms. We can support each other and we can grow and, and inter kind of like fill in the connections of the neural patterns, you know, that we see here, you know, these might be the, the small farms and some of the bigger distribution centers potentially, you know, because that is, that is kind of an ancient way to do things where food was harvested in very fertile era, areas and it was brought to kind of like a redistribution center. You know, they did it in a spiritual way in Mesopotamia in the, in the, the fertile valley, which is the cradle of civilization in ancient times. And, you know, some of the food was given to the God and the rest was given to the people. But, you know, we can have a mixture here going on. So we don't have to only have, you know, five multinationals handling food because personally, I don't, uh, I don't think that's healthy. It's not working for me. I've been here three years. You know, uh, if you saw me in Galapagos three years ago, you wouldn't recognize me. I mean, I feel the physical effects of what's happening. So it's almost like an experiment happening, you know, in real time. And I can tell you it's not attractive. It's really not healthy. And my health is declining, you know, but just by being here and I'm a healthy individual. But being in a place where, where the, in, the system is intact, where the ecosystem is intact and not degraded, helps already in, in reconnecting with wholeness, right? If we're on a degraded land system, we are degraded. Our connections, all of these neural pathways, we're only going to be using a certain amount because the other ones are unnecessary because there's degradation. So nothing's as interconnected as it, as it normally is. So it's up to us to build that interconnectivity. And I think we can do it. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, getting people on a platform or any other area, you know, that works for you, if we all come together on a platform, there's going to be a lot of sharing going on. And you can exchange food on Be Plenty. You can buy food on Be Plenty. So it's it's you setting yourself up 
as a person, as an individual, sharing with the world what you're doing, what you're growing. If you're looking for food, you can come on the network, you can come on the platform and find people in your area that actually are growing food that you want to eat, you know, and you have a chance also to crowdfund and help people get on this bandwagon, you know, to get, get on the road. I mean, we need to support each other and we all have, you know, disposable incomes and there's no reason why I can't support or become part of, you know, uh, another farm, potentially a small farm that wants to start up in my area. There's no, there's no reason why I can't participate in that or no reason why someone can't participate in helping me build a greenhouse in my backyard. So there's a lot of ways to redistribute our, our energy, our time, our resources. And this is one way to do it. It's a place where we can go and connect, where you're going to be able to, you know, see what other people in your area are doing, get a sense of the bigness of it, see even on a global scale, you know, so I can get when when I get people coming on the platform, I can start to analyze and see where where are we, you know, who's doing what where, so we can keep informed. And it's completely private. It's completely a- autonomous. We're not I'm not part of any other group. It's just me and a platform and uh, you, really. I, I, I re- you know, I respect privacy. I like my privacy to be respected. So this is just a way for us to kind of organize online, basically. Another way for us to organize online. And I feel like if, you know, if we do this, then, uh, you know, the, the, the more we treat food well, the more food is going to treat us well. And that's the key. That's why I feel like we need these helps. We, we need these things to help right now. We need these things to teach us or to show us how to be connected again. Because, uh, because honestly, uh, we don't, uh, we don't, we've, we've disconnected, you know, so we need to have those spots filled in. And eventually when we, when we all know where we are, when we've made these areas bigger, you know, when we've taken these areas of land and expanded them, expanded the use of them, taken them over in the sense of this is, this area is now we're going to use for this, you know, it's fine that, Bill Gates owns 220,000 million, you know, uh, hectares of land or acres of land. That's okay. You know, it's fine. Whatever they want to do, whatever other people are doing, they're doing it for a reason, right? Because land is, land is valuable because we, food is valuable, you know, more than even the land. There's no, there's no ownership in land. We, we can't own something that is is there without uh, without us doing anything it's just it's provided for us it's a place we live so you know even the concept of land ownership is an outdated concept and and has no basis in in the real world it's just a system of rights and we all uh, you know once we organize i'm going to really look at the legal aspects of it because i do have a legal background and i want to get into you know what kind of uh, ownerships can we have with each other you know, what, how can we, if we don't own the land, how can we make sure that it's going to be uh, taken care of in the way that we want it to be taken care of? How can we create food on it when we want to create food on it? So in different areas, there's going to be different challenges. In different cities, in different countries, there's going to be different challenges of laws, you know, of actual laws. There could be obstacles. But I feel like if we're united and the more that we're united, the more powerful we become, we become as a voice. And it's just all about organization, uniting, and relinking to our neural pathways, 
really getting, filling in those connections where a platform may not even be necessary in the future, where we just all are linked up and, you know, people who want to be disconnected can be disconnected, but at least, you know, who your neighbor is that's doing something, you know, or you can connect with a city and not feel bad about it. You know, if you're in a rural area and you went there for a reason, let's, you know, I want people to be able to move towards the land, not run away from it, right? Like if we're creating these dead zones, we're running away from it just like just, just like the animals are. And that's not helping. You know, we need to stay and uh, and, and cultivate and, and, and take over basically our areas because it's up to us. It's in our hands. There's no one that's smarter than us. There's no one that can do it better than us. We have a lot of experienced people out there and we all have different skills and talents. And I feel like if we can all get to one one or two places where we can connect with each other and see how vast those interconnections are, then they may even, even those platforms may become unnecessary, you know, over time. That would be, that would be the, the best thing that could happen. So uh, that's it. I, I hope uh, you enjoyed that. And uh, feel free to visit www.peplanty.com. It's, uh, it's online now, and uh, we're going to be uh, expanding it and creating it. And so when, once you sign up, basically what's going to happen is we're going to give you some more information about how you can create your own presence on the site. It's uh, Everybody can have their own presence in an individual way. And, uh, and uh, we can go, we can take it from there. So we're just going to be gathering information. We're going to be trying to organize ourselves, give you back the information. So you have that tool about where and how you need to know how to grow food. We can help you if you want to find food just to eat that's fresh and you want to support that way then you're going to be able to find out in your area. Even if you travel, you're going to be able to find out wherever you go, you can connect. You know, you you have these bridges, you have this bridge called Be Planty that's just helping you, you know, connect from one person to another. It's an interpersonal thing. It's not necessarily, um, it's not necessarily for anything else than that. Uh, so stay tuned. There's going to be more information. We're, we're getting the site, the actual, uh, you know, platform itself launched shortly. And uh, anyone that signs up, I'll be sending you more information and, uh, and also open to feedback and suggestions. So thank you very much for having me on. Thank you, Teresa. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. It was a great presentation. A uh, round of applause from us here at my house and I'm sure for many, many people online. Uh, again, the website is Be Planty. We'll be putting all of the links in the videos when we upload them. I know John wanted to uh, ask something to you as well, so let's bring John on. Sure. Hi, John. Oh, he's muted. John, you're muted. And there I am. Hey, I really appreciated your presentation. And yeah, your... NSA has muted you again, John. <laughs> they, they like to do that. Um, I appreciated your presentation. And I, I just wanted to share um, that the images that you had and how you started with the brain and how signals get sent along the brain. And then you compared that to the centralized hierarchical food systems. Um, that really resonated with me a lot because it's not just food that we see systems get thrown into disarray and into a centralized state, which makes them more vulnerable. It's education with, with the Prussian model. It's top down the Department of Education and then the states and then the local school district. Right. Mm -hmm. But the, the other way to do that is through a decentralized distributed way with sharing information and small micro schools and connecting to the Internet. And then with money, it's like the central banks 
issue currency and everyone's forced to use that fiat currency, then you have cryptocurrency, which is decentralized and distributed. It has more of a natural flow. And then with social organization, you can have centralized top down federal government, state government, local government and all the politicians, or you can have a decentralized distributed form of connection. So I really appreciate that's one of the themes that we've been talking about, the value of decentralization, because the great resets pushing for centralization and technology. And I think if we can just tap into and become more harmonious with the natural order of things, which isn't top down, which isn't hierarchical. It's this very spontaneous order, beautiful thing, right? Um, I think that we can find a lot more, a lot more abundance, a lot greater health, a lot more harmonious relationships with our fellow human beings and also with nature around us. So thank you so much for that, that valuable presentation. I got a lot out of it. My pleasure. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. We have the Thank capacity. You I'm sorry to cut you off. Go ahead if you want to add another thought. No, that's it. It's just, you know, it, obviously if our brains function that way, it means we're that complex. You know, we have the capacity to do this. It just takes a little bit of trust, reciprocity and, uh, and unity. That's it. And they're not really concepts that we've, you know, had examples of in large scale. So I'm glad that, you know, you, you guys really put this together so we can start listening to people, you know, hearing each other talk about how we are creating these these ways to 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 do these things now it doesn't have to be just uh centralized anymore yeah absolutely all right Teresa, thank you so much for joining us we appreciate it everybody check out her work i'm going to go ahead now and get us to our our next speaker um you know i just want to add a couple of thoughts to this to preface dr will tuttle's uh, speech first of all i know there's a lot of many 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 excited people who are you know excited to hear what he has to say um, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. One thing I want to share, though, guys, we've been talking about this is truly a international global movement. We went ahead and asked our Telegram channel. I'm going to show this on screen real quick. We went and asked our Telegram channel, "What are your? where are you watching from today? What cities and nations are we representing? And I just want to just highlight a couple. Uh, we've got the Netherlands, Finland, the Netherlands, lots of people in the Netherlands, France, Netherlands, U.S., U.K., California, Sacramento, U.K., Germany, Canada, Montreal, South Africa, UK, England, Bavaria, UK, Mexico, Portugal, Maine, Switzerland, Germany, Austria. Definitely the time change. We can see more of our European friends are tuning in right now. We appreciate that. Uh, France, Germany, India. I mean, it just goes on and on all across the US and elsewhere. Hungary. We really appreciate that just so everybody can take it in and see that this is an international movement that is already been there. We're trying to just tie together the pieces and really spend our time focusing on solutions. And that's what this whole week has been about. That's what this bonus day looking holistically at various solutions is all about. And our next speaker is going to present some topics that, as John and I mentioned earlier, we've sort of explored this in different ways, I guess, maybe more in some of the comments. Um, And it's this discussion about, as we're talking about human liberation and how to free ourselves from centralized authoritarian systems like government that many of us uh, recognize are violent, And some of us go beyond that. Some of us think about how we interact with the animal population, the animal nation, whether it comes from a religious or spiritual perspective or a dietary perspective, a moral perspective. There's a lot of conversations around that. And there's also folks out there who are watching what the World Economic Forum is pushing. Teresa mentioned Bill Gates. We know that Bill Gates, Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum, they are pushing a fake vegan diet is what I would consider. I think a lot of vegans consider it that way, a diet based on genetically engineered foods, based on 3D printed meat and uh, insects and different things, you know, that they're, that they're pushing. 
But I, I wanted to bring uh, Dr. Will Tuttle into the conversation, not only because he has a lot to share just in this realm generally, but I think it's important to balance out that vision that some people think, oh, vegans have just bought into you know, uh, global propaganda and they're supporting the system or whatever it may be. And that may be true in some instances, but many of us also, you know, kind of see through that. And, I, and as a vegan and as an anarchist, it's been interesting for me because I'll just say I have even less. This is just me personally. I have even less faith that I will convince people to become vegan than I do convince people to see that governments are violent and authoritarian institutions that I think we should evolve past. I don't think I'm ever going to convince the whole world to become anarchist, and I don't think I'm ever going to convince the whole world to become vegan, but I do try to practice what I preach, and I think many of us take that approach, and Dr. Will Tuttle is one of these people, and he's got a lot of wisdom to share with us today. So he is going to be speaking to us. He's the author of The World Peace Diet, which has been translated to 16 different languages, the recipient of numerous different awards. He's been a vegan for 40 years. Please welcome onto our virtual stage, Dr. Will Tuttle. All right, thank you. Uh, thanks so much, Derek. Uh, yeah, thanks everyone for uh, this fantastic uh, summit, uh, gathering, awakening, and activation. Uh, so I'm really honored to be here and to share some ideas with you. And uh, so the, the basic idea that I wanna share is that animal liberation and human liberation are intimately and ultimately interconnected. So, um, I think uh, this is probably the big unyielding dilemma uh, of our species right now because we, we want to have some way that we can uh, have our meat and eat it too, something that we can have, we can abuse animals uh, and uh, exploit them and be free ourselves. And uh, this is not going to work, in my humble opinion, because ultimately uh, we, as we sow, we reap. So I want to kind of unpack all this a little bit and, uh, and just say that, you know, I think the most important thing, of course, is that we uh, refuse to acquiesce to the tyranny that we see unfolding around us and that we do the best we can to educate ourselves and to educate each other uh, about what the great reset, great reset really is and about the uh, forces behind the scenes that are appealing to us as if they're benevolent, uh, but they're actually very deceptive. And it's, uh, it's a movement to enslave uh, humanity that I think is, is becoming more obvious to people who uh, can look more deeply and see what's actually happening. Uh, it's disappointing to see how few people are actually seeing that. But I, I do feel that this number is growing and it's the most important conversation we can be having right now, I think. And so I'm very grateful to all of you for your kind attention and your efforts. And uh, I'm born and raised in uh, Concord, Massachusetts, which is a kind of a famous place for those of you who study philosophy, the Transcendentalist Movement and Walden Pond and the book Walden by Henry David Thoreau, who's pretty famous for the saying that I really like, which is that for every thousand people who are hacking at the branches of evil, there is one person hacking at the root. And so there's only one person hacking at the root and thousand hacking at the branches. And I think that's this is a serious problem in our movement in general. I think we're uh, spending a lot of time hacking at the branches and not getting to the root. And so the World Peace Diet, the book that uh, Derek mentioned that I wrote, uh, is an effort to get to the root of the problem, 
which is human domination of animals and exploitation and oppression of other living beings as if they don't matter, as if their interests don't matter because we're superior and we're privileged and we're elite and we can uh, use them for products, for food, however we want. And uh, so this has been uh, part of the conversation here that uh, in the greater reset has been, of course, as we know, some of us have been advocating uh, animal agriculture, backyard uh, farming of, of not only of, of plants, but also of animals. And so uh, I'm really here to deeply fundamentally question the wisdom of that and the ultimate uh, efficacy of that approach, which is really uh, a continuation of a process that's been going on for 10,000 years here on this planet of herding animals. Um, I coined the word herderism to talk about the fundamental underlying orientation of our society, of Western society, and really I think basically of the entire planet at this point, has pretty much all been brought under the umbrella of uh, the complete domination and exploitation of animals and of human beings because they go together. So uh, the thing to understand I think at the very beginning is that we've all been indoctrinated in a very fundamental way. And anthropologists understand, for example, when they study cultural indoctrination, which happens in every society, that every society transmits its values from generation to generation, and they do it through the rituals uh, of that particular society. And every society has rituals, and the main ritual in every society actually is food. It's meals. When we sit down and we're at the table and we're eating food, we're not just eating food. We have to really understand the importance of, under, you know, of comprehending this because we're not just eating food, we're eating attitudes. We're eating a whole constellation of ideas about our relationship and our orientation to each other between men and women, between humans and animals, humans and nature, humans and the divine or the cosmos. You look deeply into food and you're looking deeply into the heart and soul of your society and really of ourselves because we are born into a society. We live in a society, but that society lives in us. And that society's conditioning and programming permeates our mind and thoughts. I was a Zen Buddhist monk back in the 1980s. I've spent thousands of hours in meditation, just sitting on the floor, watching my mind. And I realized after, after thousands of hours, it took a lot of work, how my mind had been colonized. You know, I, we're born here on this planet. And we're, uh, I think, essentially um, quite open, free, and un unprogrammed at that point. I mean, we've already received programming, I think, just being in the womb and listening to conversations and in some ways receiving the impressions of what's going on around us. But So the programming begins early on. But the basic idea, I think, is to see that we're, um, we're born into a culture. That culture lives in us. And the rituals of our society... Uh, the main one being food, uh, impregnate us at a very deep level of our consciousness. And so, like I was saying, my, I realized my mind had been uh, colonized and that the program, the colonization was not benevolent. It's, it's really actually extremely toxic. 
And yet it's portrayed to us as something good, something benevolent, how this is getting plenty of protein, plenty of calcium. Uh, it's it's um, mediated by the people we love and trust, my own mother, my father, my teachers, my friends, my neighbors, my relatives, the minister at the church, my doctor, the television, the media, you know, every direction it's coming. Uh, an absolute flood of programming that God gave us animals to eat. They don't have a soul. They taste good. If you don't eat them, you're definitely going to die within 24 hours of a protein deficiency. This is what you've got to do. This is so deep. And, and the thing we have to understand is that this is a cultural program that is not only injected into us through our behavior, through relentlessly, three times a day, typically, we ritualistically and relentlessly partake of this indoctrination uh, that we are superior to animals, that they don't matter, that their interests don't matter, and that uh, if we don't eat them, we're gonna die. I mean, it's like absolutely essential. And, uh, and, we're, and, and this is coming to us by people we totally trust. And we have to really understand the power of that. This is coming from everyone around us. And so as little kids, we're like little sponges. We just soak it all in. And we just go, and so we know, and we teach it to our children, and they teach it to their children. But it's not something we just learn. We eat it, right? I mean, my the very cells of my heart, of my stomach, of my brain are built from the flesh and secretions of horribly abused animals. And that's the fundamental dilemma. That's the truth. That's the wound. We've all been wounded. So I'm here basically not to criticize anyone, to blame anyone, to shame, or, or in any way, any, to speak against anyone. I, I just want to help us understand the system that we're born in, to understand that we are at the point now, after 10,000 years of herderism, of owning animals as property for food and other products, and reducing them to mere objects and commodities, and buying and selling them by the pound, and building up gradually more and more insulation between ourselves and them so we don't even hardly see them anymore. We're not out there. See, if I say we live in a herding culture, people go, no, we don't live in a herding culture. I'm not herding sheep and goats and cows. Most people aren't. But it's massively uh, pervasive. It's industrialized. And uh, it's automated. And we're killing billions of animals I mean, you can, you know, when we include marine animals, billions of animals every day, uh, we human beings have created the, a massive industrialized killing machine of epic proportions. And if someone came from, a, from outer space and landed here and started looking around and studying how we were living and what was going on on planet Earth and radioed back up to the mothership up there and say, well, so what's going on down there? They would say, well, the main thing that's happening is we've got this one species these, these hu human beings, and they're just basically killing and slaughtering a lot of animals and destroying the ecosystems in order to do it. And so we don't realize that. We have a mass media that is committed to keeping that invisible. And we ourselves would rather keep that invisible because we're eating the food and we'd rather not think about it. So that's the problem. We have the situation in, which is inherently dangerous. And uh, if we were born as cows or pigs or chickens, we would understand this. We would know that we are being dominated and exploited brutally on a massive scale and that our interests don't matter. But since we're the dominator species, we just we just don't see it, right? We just have the luxury of, of being oblivious. And yet for 10,000 years, we've been 
getting more and more refined in our in our power over nature, developing our technology to a greater and greater degree so that animals have gone, basically, think about animals. They've gone from being basically completely f- free, living their lives without being harmed and abused by human beings, to then being hunted, to then being herded, right? About 10,000 years ago, people started, it was in, in what is today Iraq, seeing certain sheep. These are my, these are our sheep, you know, we, we own them. They started owning these animals as property. So they've gone from being hunted to being herded. Uh, and then as technology developed to being confined, hyper-confined, uh, mutil- genetically mutilated, genetically, genetically engineered, and in more and more ways mutilated, uh, and drugged, and to the point now where they're—it's uh, really terrible. And I know you know—it's great to hear people passionately talking against factory farming uh, because uh, this, there's this idea that backyard farming is somehow different from factory farming. It's not different. It's the same basic violence, the same basic domination and exploitation of animals, and the same basic unnecessary harm of other living beings and then justifying it and rationalizing it i mean it's it's been backyard farming basically small-scale farming for for thousands of years really i mean it was basically small-scale people did it and when it you know it's just it's going to keep growing it's going to you know, there's going to be this idea of being more efficient um, but underlying everything today in many ways i think we have this idea that there was the good old days when animals uh, had it better and people had it better, uh, maybe the medieval period. You know, the p- medieval period, they were they were uh, abusing animals horribly. Uh, geese would have their uh, their feet just nailed to the floor so they wouldn't run away. I mean, don't don't think that animal agriculture. There's ever people have ever been loving and kind to the animals that they're going to kill. It doesn't work like that. It really doesn't work like that. And I think. We have to understand that, that it, there's always violence involved in animal agriculture. It's unavoidable. So maybe um, I can, well, maybe I'll, I'll just address that now a little bit more because it's maybe important to get that out of the way. Because I think, you know, this idea that somehow backyard farming is is uh, is less violent, it's, um, it's a myth. And uh, there's been, for example, I've traveled... Uh, all over the world giving lectures promoting vegan living. I've given over 4,000 lectures all over the United States and all 50 states here and over 50 countries in Europe, Africa, Asia, the Middle East, North and South America, Australia, New Zealand. And I've been able to visit a lot of sanctuaries. Sanctuaries are places where farmed animals like cows and pigs and chickens, geese, ducks, uh, sheep and goats, and these animals who have been uh, confined either in factory farms or in backyard operations uh, somehow escape the system, somehow escape the gulag through some miracle. A cow jumps over a fence at a slaughterhouse and runs, for example, or a pig falls off a, a, a transport truck and somehow is rescued and brought to a, a sanctuary or s- s- something happens and they somehow escape. And so uh, these are wonderful, from my point of view, these are wonderful people and wonderful p- educational centers. And uh, you can go to a f- uh, farmed animal sanctuary and see chickens and, and these other animals who are living out their lives uh, by, uh, with caring people, taking care of them. And, and then there's tours of these places where people can go and actually meet 
chickens and see how each chicken has uh, their own unique personality and how pigs love to have their bellies rubbed and how cows uh, also have, have their unique personalities and have and are able to forgive us uh, with time typically. Uh, but to see them as beings, not as just mere commodities that are bought and sold by the pound. And so in talking to these people who run these sanctuaries, and I've asked this all over the world in sanctuaries in Australia, the United States, in Canada, in Europe, China, uh, you know, about factory farmed animals versus um, backyard farmed animals when they arrive at the sanctuaries. And I've heard over and over again, they say, it's no better. The animals are no better treated on, on backyard operations. In fact, in certain ways, it's even worse. You know, on factory farms, animals are horribly abused. I mean, they're hyper-confined. They're traumatized by the confinement. They are abused, and they have to heal from that. Uh, but I've heard it over and over again that on backyard operations, animals are terribly abused. Very often, it's by neglect. They're just starve or they're uh, like that, something like that, or sadistic abuse it happens. I mean, in factory farms, there's perhaps less sadistic abuse uh, because there's not, there's not just a few individuals, there's so many. But in, in general, I've been researching this for over 40 years. I've been a vegan for over 40 years now, and I've been doing research into this and uh, traveled. The, I lived in an RV for 18 years with my wife, traveling all over North America, I mean, seeing what animal agriculture does, it's incredibly ugly. I mean, the, no question that factory farming is ugly. It's massive, massively ugly. But small-scale uh, operations uh, have this, I, this sort of patina that somehow they're compassionate. And uh, the animals, it's still the same story. I own you. I own your baby. I'm going to impregnate you against your will. I'm going to, when you give birth to your baby, I'm going to steal your baby. I'm going to kill your baby. And then I'm going to impregnate you again. And then I'm going to steal your baby again. And then I'm going to kill you. I mean, that's what it is. It's massive, routine, relentless sexual abuse of females and massive, routine sexual abuse of children, of, of the young offspring of cows and pigs and chickens. All these animals are sexually uh, abused and on the rape racks and, for, and impregnated in some way typically against their will. Their babies are stolen. Uh, there's, um, there's just ongoing sexual and physical violence to these animals. And uh, there's no, no amount of rationalizing it. I don't I think it, it uh, can actually make it go away. And it's completely unnecessary. Uh, you know, that's the thing I think it's important to understand. I mean, there are no nutrients that we need to harm animals to get. Uh, I'm a vegan for 40 years. I'm just as healthy and probably a lot healthier than people in their late 60s like I am. I'm sure I could run circles around people. I haven't, you know, I've been, I've been, a, I've been very blessed. I haven't actually, I was thinking about it. <laughs> I haven't been um, to a doctor really. Last time I was at a, really at a doctor for some kind of thing um, was when I was in college at the infirmary. I remember I had a boil on my lip and I went to the infirmary. It was back in 1970. One, so that you know, that's fifty years ago. Um, so you know the pharmaceutical industry hates it. There, there are people like me that never use drugs and never go to the drugstore and never go to the doctor and just stay out of the system because I don't need to um, because I take responsibility for my health. And I think all of us um, need to learn to take responsibility more for our health um, because 
eating a, a healthy, organic, a whole food, plant-based way of eating uh, is really, I think, the ultimate act of sabotage of the Great Reset. I mean, if you, the Great Reset is based on the opposite of that. It's about giving away our power to big corporations, pharmaceutical, medical food systems, and lording it over creation. You know, we're the superior species. We can dominate and exploit animals. And, and this, this mentality has got to stop. It's, it's absolutely, you know, I don't blame anyone for it. We, you know, we're all born into it. Our grandparents teach us how to, my grandparents, you know, teach us how to fish, how to hunt, how to, you know, how to kill animals. And I went through it myself, actually. I remember uh, when I was uh, like 13, 14 years old, for several years, I was in the summers, I'd go up to this uh, summer camp in Vermont. And it was called Camp Challenge, and it was challenging us with canoe trips and hikes in the mountains and things like that. But it was affiliated with this beautiful little organic farm nestled in the green mountains of Vermont, one of those beautiful little backyard farms where nothing bad ever happens. They had a few chickens and a few cows and so forth. But I remember learning, I was 13 years old, they taught me how to catch a chicken and how to hold her down uh, with my left hand on this board on the, on the ground that had two nails in it and how to kind of get her neck through the nails. And then in my right hand, I had my ax and I cut her head off and let her go, let her run around spouting blood everywhere till she expired. Then I put her through the scalding tank and we all ate our chickens. And I have to say, you know, 13 years old, I had no problem doing that. I had no, I mean, I had, you know, I'd been, I had been, I had gone through 13 years of the most intense indoctrination a human being can possibly go through 13 years, three times a day of eating the mentality and the practice of herderism, right? Of we're superior. God gave us these animals. They don't have a soul. They taste good. You got to eat them. or You're going to die from a protein deficiency in 24 hours. You know, that's what I believe. And so I was old enough now as a kind of moving from boyhood into manhood. I, man's got to do what a man's got to do. I can kill my chicken. So I did, and I didn't. I didn't like it, but I had no problem doing it. I was a tough young kid, you know, and so so um, so I did it. And and uh, and then um, I remember every summer we would also uh, we would always gather around one of the dairy cows, and these cows, uh, they were uh, not old, you know. It was that was one of the main points, you know. The cows would naturally live twenty five, roughly twenty five years in the wild. And uh, when they're five years old, you know, they would, we would kill one at the age of five because by then they were worn out. They'd already been giving milk. Usually they've been impregnated, you know, four times by then. You impregnate them really early, really when they're still children. You know, so this is, you know, pedophilia to cows and pigs and chickens. They're all sexually abused when just as soon as you possibly can put them on special hormones to get them so they can come into heat early. You don't want to waste money on feed. You want to get them pregnant early. And then you put them on the rape rack and, and you get some sperm from some um, sexually abusing male cows and you get a get a, one of these one of these sperm guns and put it in her vagina and pull the trigger. I mean, this is massive sexual violence to these animals who are defenseless in our hands. This is happening, this is still happening on small backyard operations and and on all these operations, you have to the cow's not gonna give milk or a, or a sheep or a goat unless you make her pregnant and then as soon as she gives birth after nine months just like us then we then you steal the little baby away and you kill the baby typically i mean if it's a male you kill her kill him and half the time if it's a female you kill her and one of the one of the four um will become a slave on the dairy 
But um, so I, you know, I, I participated in that, right? I mean, we would stand around this five-year-old cow who was, you know, basically worn out because she'd been kept pregnant and lactating simultaneously, which no mammal is designed to ever have to go through that, pregnant and lactating simultaneously. We're not designed for that. So they're worn out. You do that over and over again. It's brutal. And then we steal the calf away and kill the calf. And now it was time to kill her. And so we, we stood around and we had a gun and we just put it to her head and pulled the trigger. You know, the guy who owned it said, well, you know, we can't use it for uh, milk money, money anymore, so we're going to use it for meat money. And it's milk or, or meat. That's their purpose. I mean, I remember going to Heifer International headquarters in Arkansas, and they told me that uh, animals are put here on this earth for the four M's, meat, milk, manure, and money. That's their purpose, meat, milk, manure, and money. So, you know, we, we worry, right? We worry uh, here that we're losing our purpose. I mean, I think we should really worry that we're losing our purpose on this earth. We human beings have lost our purpose. We've been turned into consumers and our purposes have been stolen from us. And we have to realize that there's one reason that's happened. It's because we've stolen the purposes of these animals. As you sow, so shall you reap. You, we, if we think that we have the right to steal the purposes of these other beings, on a massive scale, what's going to happen to us? We're going to lose our purpose. We want to enslave them? Sure. What's going to happen to us? We're going to become enslaved. It's, uh, it's unavoidable. Remember what uh, the Apostle Paul said. He said, God is not mocked. Whatsoever you sow, that shall you also reap. God is not mocked. That whatsoever you sow, so shall you also reap. So we're sowing the seeds of violence and abuse of vulnerable beings whose interests are to them as important to them as our interests are to us. And this is something that is continually hidden in our society. And we do everything we can to bend over backwards to ignore it and to use euphemisms like, well, no, we didn't kill her, we harvested her. You know, we, we harvested her like, like we were harvesting cherries off a tree. I remember seeing how they would even say, uh, in some of the ads years ago for burgers. So the burgers come from a burger patch. They didn't want kids to know the truth. Uh, they wanted to think you harvest a burger like you harvest a berry from a patch. And so this underlying uh, violence uh, toward these animals, I, could, I participated as a young kid. And I remember uh, when we shot the cow in the head and how she uh, it took several shots before she collapsed on the floor of the barn, nice little barn in Vermont. But, you know, you, they don't come in and tell you about that part. But you can't keep feeding these animals. You can't feed them beyond the age when they're giving uh, milk or or the males that get born. You, you, you got to eat them as veal or just kill them. You got to eat them. You got to kill them or eat them or just kill them and bury them, whatever. You got to get rid of them. You can't just feed them. So there's massive killing always going on in these operations, which is hidden. So I saw all that and I saw how she was reduced and how terrified she was and how she was reduced to being just massive amounts of urine and feces and blood everywhere. And uh, again, it was shocking to be part of it, but I never, I was so indoctrinated, I never for a second thought we were doing something wrong, something unnecessary. I knew this was necessary. This is how God set it up. You know, this is how it is here. You got to do it. You're going you know, to be deficient if you don't. If you don't eat this, this terror and misery and toxic violence, I mean, what a lie. It's a huge deception. It's a total deception. We've all been fooled. And I think we have to wake up from this. Because, you know, what this whole greater reset is, what this whole movement is about, is about awakening from the deception. Awakening from the deception. 
we've, we've been fooled. We, we have been so deceived about food. Food is our most intimate connection with nature. It's our most intimate connection with our society. If we allow ourselves to be deceived about food, we'll be deceived about everything. And that's the problem. We've been deceived about everything and we're easily deceived because of it. Because the whole idea is to just don't make the connection, right? That's the basic, when we're sitting at the table and we're eating food of animal origin, there's a very powerful teaching that's going on, which is don't make the connection. Don't think about what is on your plate and what it really took to get it onto your plate. You don't want to contemplate the fact that we have, we're having rabbit stew. Okay, we have this rabbit and we raised and you know, and it's based on a on deception, right? We are deceiving these animals. I mean, on big factory farm operations, there's less deception really in many ways. These animals know from the moment they're born into hell that they're in hell and they're in hell the whole time. And on some backyard operations, maybe there are, I'm sure there are people who are nice to their rabbits and nice to their chickens uh, and so forth. Uh, but I mean, what's the purpose? I mean, I'm, not, I'm patting you with uh, one minute with one hand and with the other hand, I've got my knife and I'm going to stab you. I mean, talk about a perverse betrayal and a, and a betrayal and a deception of innocent trusting beings. I'm going to feed you and nurture you and I care about you. I care about your health. I mean, how do we live with ourselves if we're, if we're in a society that's promoting this? If people did that to dogs and cats, we'd be spitting on them and yelling how terrible they are. But if it's cows and pigs and chicken, oh, we think they're wonderful people. We have to understand, I'm not, again, not blaming anyone. Just, this is where, how we're all wounded. We're all programmed. We have the blinders slapped on our face by our violent society that we're born into. And we have our, our intelligence shut down because... The basic idea is that when we're eating animal foods, like I was saying at a table, every single meal is a, is a practice of disconnectedness. We're practicing the art of disconnecting, of just eating, or we're eating a burger, we're eating a fish stick, we're eating some cheese, we're eating an egg, we're eating uh, pork chops, right? We're not, we're, we're not eating a cow or a chick. We're not connecting with the actual being uh, we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. Of course, we human beings, the main core of our being is empathy. What makes us, I think, us is empathy. We have the capacity. We've all suffered, right? We've all suffered physically. We've all suffered psychologically. We would like to help. We would like to not only not suffer uh, ourselves, we would like to also um, not have others suffer. That's our natural tendency is to try to help relieve the suffering of others. That's uh, a natural tendency. And so that natural tendency of kindness and benevolence and mercy, which is, a, which is deep in our hearts, it's our true nature, against our will by very loving people, that's been shut down by our society, by being forced. You know, I was compelled by loving people to eat meat, dairy products, and eggs, the flesh and secretions of horribly abused animals. And I did it because I, I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be like everybody else. Well, I, and I didn't have a choice. I mean, I had to. It was just it. That was, you eat it. I mean, it was like, that's, that's it, you know? So the whole idea is to realize that this reduces our intelligence. Intel, I have a PhD in education from Berkeley. And I remember, you know, in my research, do into education and intelligence that basically intelligence is the capacity to make relevant connections. We all understand that Capa intelligence is the capacity to make relevant connections and to respond to relevant feedback.
And if we impair that, if we stop making connections, if we stop responding to feedback, we become more and more foolish, stupid, disconnected, unaware, obtuse, right? And that's not a good idea. When, when that happens, we do things that are very harmful to ourselves and to others. And so uh, there's, there's, there's cognitive intelligence, there's ethical intelligence, there's emotional intelligence. All three of these are harmed by animal agriculture, by eating the flesh and secretions of abused animals. We have to shut down our natural cognitive intelligence that actually looks deeply, cares deeply, feels deeply, makes connections, can understand wow, how wasteful animal agriculture is, how violent it is, how unnecessary it is. Our natural cognitive intelligence would easily make that very plain to us. But since we're raised in a society where that basic type of intelligence is reduced with every single meal, it's eroded away and it's done in the entire society. So our entire society, nobody talks about this in the media. You know, and I understand that on one level because my father owned a whole chain of newspapers. I was born into the media. So I learned growing up around the same table where I learned to eat animal foods. I also learned you don't ever run any news articles that the advertisers will object to. I mean, I know that in my bones because I saw how it worked. And so now the media, the, the radio and television and newspaper and everything, all of that media that most people rely on to get their information, uh, it's controlled by the advertisers. And so I think it's essential to understand that uh, the main advertisers are the big meat, dairy, and egg industries, the fast food industries, the pharmaceutical industries, and to, um, to understand that we're getting their version of this and not getting the version uh, that would actually create the foundation of a positive future for us. So, um, Derek, I can see you're there. Do you have something you want to share with me or? We, we are just at the end of your, your uh, time space here today, uh, Will. We appreciate oh. that, that we okay. appreciate the message. Any closing thoughts you want to share? We'll give you another moment or so. I'll, let you, I'll pop off if you want to share some closing thoughts. Great. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so, um, so basically I think um, that for our movement uh, of liberation to actually uh, create uh, the possibility for uh, success, uh, it's essential for us to give to others what we would want for ourselves, to um, connect in, in, with our hearts to, to, to the beings that we're abusing. Like if, if a super powerful species showed up here and they uh, thought we tasted good, we would hope that they would understand that we have purposes ourselves, just as chickens and cows and pigs do, and would allow us to live our lives. And I think um, I'm, I'm sorry that I've gone by my, past my time because there was several other things I wanted to say, but basically veganic agriculture is a thing. People are, you don't need to use bone meal, blood meal and manure and all these things. There's lots of people doing plant-based agriculture. Um, and we ourselves are doing that. We have about 60 or 70 fruit trees and vegetables and everything in Northern California, uh, thriving on, on plant-based using, uh, cover crops, rotation, you know, all these things we can compost and, uh, effective microorganisms. There's many, uh, innovations that we can make to avoid, um, abusing other animals and planting seeds of kindness and compassion for other beings. So thank you very much and, uh, for your kind attention. Thanks. Thank you, Will. Thank you so much. We appreciate your time and, and uh, we will make sure everybody finds your work. I appreciate you sharing this this on this kind of sometimes 
I guess, a difficult conversation for people. We appreciate you taking the time to dissect it, and uh, we look forward to having you on. And perhaps me and you can do an extended interview following the event where we can dive a little deeper into some of these aspects. Yeah, that would be great. You know, there was a lot more I wanted to go into, but, you know, it's just uh, I get into a time warp, I think. But I just want to mention to everybody, um, I did put together on my website a free resource. So if you just go to worldpeacediet.com, uh, and then slash resources. That's it. Worldpeacediet.com slash resources. It's actually a free download of my book and an, also an audio book and also a guided meditation uh, with these ideas. So if you want to go deeper, worldpeacediet.com slash resources. I'll, I'll lower lowercase actually. And uh, and I and please stay in touch. I have, I'm happy to uh, be in touch with people. Absolutely. We'll put we'll make sure to put that on our website as well. We appreciate that. All right. Thank you. All right, guys. So we're going to continue our conversation. I just wanted to add a couple of things. Let's kind of recenter. We're going to now move on on our bonus day, our holistic day, looking at numerous solutions. We talked with Teresa about bee planty, her effort to bring people together to trade food and connect gardens and farmers. We were just exploring the vegan diet and Dr. Will Tuttle, author of The World Peace Diet, on his ideas about human liberation and how it's tied to animal liberation. And I just want to say that I hope that everyone who's with us today, whether you eat meat or not, that you listened with open ears and an open mind. Because unfortunately, we did notice a little bit on our Wednesday day when we did permaculture, where some folks talked about using animals in different ways, not necessarily just about eating animals, but say like working with them on their farm or trying to use their manure, that there were some uh, of the vegan persuasion, I'm vegan myself, but some of the vegan persuasion who said, well, they mentioned animal use, so I can't listen anymore. And they just totally shut down. And I think that that's unfortunate because we really do want to build bridges and see how we can, how can we hear from each other? How can we actually listen, not just talk past each other? Because clearly something has brought us to these stages and, and these movements and that are intersecting now as we're all looking for liberation. And we do better to, we serve ourselves better in the cause that we care about better by listening to each other, supporting each other where we can, having healthy dialogue, nonviolent communication to understand where we disagree. So, and I also want the vegans to think, well, if you rejected the talks on Wednesday because somebody mentioned use of animals, then unfortunately there might be meat eaters today that rejected the talks because it mentioned vegan. And that's what happens when we don't listen to each other. So I just want to encourage that dialogue and, uh, you know, say that we're all aiming to do better always. And that's, I think, where we need to focus on for the moment. Um, yeah. And so as we continue this conversation, we're going to move now back to some health topics. Particularly, we're going to be talking about vaccines. And our next speaker is the founder and president of the Voice for Choice Advocacy Incorporated. And she's doing a lot of great work, especially in the times of COVID, talking about vaccines, masks and PCR tests. So please welcome Christina Hildebrand to our stage. She's muted. Hey, there, there you go. We got to unmute you. There you go. All right. Welcome. All right. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's, it's exciting to be here. Yeah. All right. It's all yours. Thanks. Fabulous. I am going to share my screen. I ha do have some slides. Um, I'm hoping that'll keep me on, on topic and uh, on target uh, uh, time-wise. Um, so my name is Christina Hildebrand. I am the founder and president of A Voice for Choice Advocacy. Uh, we mainly work in California, although with uh, COVID going on, we definitely reach uh, most of the U.S. And, and much of the world with what we, uh, you know, sharing the truth. Uh, today, I'm going to talk about the COVID vaccines and the mandates and where do we go from here. Uh, this is a topic that is very timely. And so I'm just going to give sort of an overview. I don't know 
how much people listening know, don't know about the COVID vaccine. So I'm, some of you may know all this already. Uh, others of you may be new to this. And so I'm going to kind of give an overview of uh, the vaccines, what's out there, and then you know questions you should have, uh, whether you're for vaccines or not. Um, and finally, what we can do uh, to stop the mandates of, of these vaccines. Uh, so starting off here, uh, COVID vaccines. So there are 200 plus COVID vaccines, COVID-19 vaccines in clinical trials worldwide currently. 7.8 within the US, $7.81 billion has been given to six companies to further their COVID vaccine uh, manufacturing, processing, clinical trials. And over 600 million COVID vaccine doses have been ordered as of today in the US. Uh, we Just a reminder, we have about 328 million people in the US, and each person is going to get two doses of most of these vaccines. The J&J vaccine only requires one vaccine. So realistically looking at it, you're looking at you know enough vaccines to vaccinate the whole of the US, whether you like it or not. I am going to stick to the US today. I know there may be people from all over the world watching. Um, I'm going to stick to the US because that's what I know best, but most countries are doing the same thing. Uh, looking at the two that have been approved here in the U.S., Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna, there have been about 21 million doses given. Again, you're going to split that in half because two doses are given per per trial. But this is 21 million have given, been given at least that first dose. And as I said, the two vaccines, the Pfizer, BioNTech, and the Moderna vaccines in the U.S. have been authorized for emergency use. What does that mean? I'm going to go into that a little bit and spend a little bit of time on that because most people getting these vaccines just think the vaccine's been approved and they're good to go. No, is the answer to that. Um, we are still in phase three clinical trials. So usually for a vaccine, it takes somewhere between five and 15 years for a vaccine to be fully developed, fully clinically trialed um, and come onto the market. These vaccines have been created and come onto the market under emergency use in the US, but they've come onto the market within six months, eight months, um, and the clinical trials are going on. The phase three clinical trials only started in the summer. So we're about four months, five months, six months, not even six months into the phase three clinical trials. Yet, they have been given emergency use authorization, which means they can be given to any American that falls into, currently there's a priority system, um, but any American be give, can be given them. However, if you take these vaccines, you are part of that human experiment. You are part of the clinical trials. You're not officially part of the phase three clinical trials. I call it the phase four clinical trials. Um, when you're given the vaccine in the US, you're asked to sign up for vSafe. And vSafe is a tracker. Uh, it's a text-based messaging system, and they email, they text you um, for the first week every day, then it's once a week, then it's once a month, then it's once, you know, every few months. Uh, for 24 months, they want to follow up with you. That's the same as a clinical trial. So just be aware that these vaccines have not been fully tested for safety and efficacy at all. Uh, we don't know long-term safety effects. We only have about two months, two, three months of safety data. We only have two, three months of efficacy data. And so you're really, if you choose to take the COVID vaccines at this point, you are part of a human experiment. 
a, a global human experiment and you have no idea what the ramifications are. We actually have more idea of what the ramifications are of actually getting COVID, the disease, than we do the vaccine. Uh, on the next few slides, I'm going to go through each of the six COVID vaccines that are furthest along in the US. Uh, some of these are also far along in other countries, uh, mostly European countries, Western European countries. I'm not going to go into the Chinese vaccines or the Russian vaccines, uh, but they're, you know, they are in existence and they are being used. Similar, similar technology is being used to the three different types of vaccines that we have here in the US. So the first one that I'm going to talk about is these phase three clinical trials with FDA emergency use authorization. We have the Pfizer-BioNTech and the Moderna vaccine. These are approved, fully approved in 10 countries and five countries respectively, not in the US, although Pfizer-BioNTech has said that they want to get approved in the U US, fully approved by May. So they're Phase three clinical trials will not be finished by that time. Um, emergency authorized, including the US, uh, in 22 countries and six countries, respectively. I put Sanofi in here because, interestingly, Sanofi in, the, in Europe and in the US was creating their own vaccine, uh, but has put that on the back burner because it wasn't getting great results. And they have offered... Uh, to manufacture the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine in Europe. So uh, that they, they are creating a, a relationship there. So these two vaccines are what's called messenger RNA vaccines. They're nucleic acid vaccines that contain, that contain genetic material, uh, either DNA or RNA, and they carry that in genetic instructions for the spike protein, which goes into your cells and then it's, it creates a, the antibodies there. Now, these are considered 95% effective. I'm going to go in on the next slide to what that actually means. So they sound wonderfully effective on the first two months of clinical trial data. Um, I'm going to go into what that means. And then the last piece on each of these slides I'm going to say is what the concerns are. So the concerns for these vaccines and why people are having anaphylactic shock most likely is because the polyethylene glycol, that's antifreeze. Uh, these, these vaccines are kept in extremely uh, low temperatures. So the Pfizer-BioNTech is at minus 70 degrees. And so they have to include antifreeze so that the vaccine doesn't freeze. Um, the other thing that I'll be mentioning, which is important to some people, not important to other people, uh, but some of these are tested using fetal cells. So the actual manufacturing doesn't use fetal cells, but the testing does. Some of them are manufactured using fetal cells. And so I'll just mention that for those people that are interested and, and you know want to be aware of that. So what does efficacy actually mean? So I'm taking the Pfizer-BioNTech as an example. 95% COVID vaccine efficacy sounds great, means that it stops COVID, right? No. <laughs> um, the two doses given, so this is the clinical trial data, uh, two doses were given to about 21,000, 22,000 people. The placebo was given to 22,000 people, so relatively similar there. So after the second dose, within or uh, seven days after that, if people got COVID within the first two months, they were, they were noted. So there were eight people who got the vaccine, the true vaccine, that got COVID, and there were 162 people that in the placebo group that got the vaccine, uh, that got COVID, the virus. So looks like, wow, yeah, you're much more likely to get the virus if you're in the placebo group. 
definitely. So that's how they calculated it. Out of the total 170 people that got the vaccine, uh, that got COVID, uh, 95% of them, 162, were in the placebo group. So that gives you 95% eff- efficacy. However, because we're only in phase two, phase three and two months in, we really don't know how many people have been exposed to COVID within, say, 12 months. What happens after two months? And the way I like to look at the data, or another way of looking at the data, is eight people out of the people who got the COVID vaccine, out of those 21,720 people, got COVID. So 0.03% of people got COVID after taking the vaccine. But after taking the placebo, 162 out of that 22-odd thousand got COVID virus. So it's only 0.7%. So less than 1% of people in the placebo group got COVID. So realistically, looking at these numbers, yes, there is a difference. But realistically, I'll take my chances with the placebo of getting COVID because I still have a less than 1% chance of getting COVID with the placebo. Now, I say that and I laugh about it because realistically, we need to look at 12 months, 24 months of both these groups and see what the actual COVID rate is after a significant period of time. Two months really isn't. Most of these 22,000 total 44,000 people weren't exposed to COVID. So the numbers really are irrelevant. And that's what I'm trying to say. You can't use the 95%. You also probably can't use my 1% or less than 1% data there. Going on to the next set of vaccines, uh, these are in phase three clinical trials here in the US. The AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine is being used in the UK, uh, and and that is one of their main. They have the Pfizer-BioNTech and the AstraZeneca. We have Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna. These are different vaccines. So the the AstraZeneca and the uh, J&J, the Janssen vaccine, are a similar type of vaccine, but they are different from the mRNA vaccine. These vaccines are adrenovirus vector vaccines. And what they do is they combine a current coronavirus for Oxford AstraZeneca. It's a human, sorry, it's a it's a monkey coronavirus. For the J&J one, it's a human coronavirus. They take those and then they put into it the antigen, the, the COVID vaccine, COVID-19 antigen. And so it's a mixture of both. And they behave like live viruses, live virus vaccines, which are good because they create a robust immune response. But there's also a potential for artificial infection so that you actually get the virus or something similar. The other piece of it that is interesting is, for example, if you've had the coronavirus, so the monkey virus, you won't likely have had, but if you've had the coronavirus that they're using in the J&J one, your body won't react to this and won't create a response because you've already created a response to the to this piece that's called the backbone. These vaccines are less effective because of that. Uh, they're 60 to 70% effective. Again, we're just basing this on clinical trials, so we really don't you know, to me, that number really means nothing. Um, the other thing that I should mention here is the J&J vaccine is the only vaccine out of these four that we've talked about that is actually the technology is currently on the market. It was used in a Ebola vaccine and that has been FDA approved. None of the other vaccines have ever been used and FDA approved in humans. So you are really, truly a guinea pig for the Moderna the Pfizer-BioNTech, 
the AstraZeneca vaccine because this technology has never been used. We have no idea of the long-term effects um, in, in people, in humans. Uh, these ones, these two contain polysorbate 80, which some people are allergic to, and they are created and tested using fetal cells, so both of those. The third set of vaccines, these are in phase three, phase two clinical trials. Uh, they are not on the market anywhere at the moment, but these are protein-based vaccines that contain basically the full length of the spike protein, the antigen, or a key part of it. Um, and they work slightly differently from the other two uh, because only the protein um, or the, it's, it's protein-based. And these become more vulnerable because they actually degrade much faster, uh, they mutate, uh, and so it's especially when there's just the key part of it. Again, the Novavax vaccine is using a technology that's currently on the market for the flu, flu block vaccine, and so there is some data on this technology uh, and how, how the long-term effects on that. Um, the Sanofi one, as I said, they have kind of taken it off off the clinical trials, they've taken a step back because it's not as um, as being as effective as they would like, and they're switching their focus onto helping Pfizer Biontech. Uh, the concern with these ones, uh, the Novavax, the Sanofi one, I'm not sure of because there's not much data out there, but the Novavax uses this uh, Quilianus sopanis as an adjuvant. It's a soapbox tree adjuvant. An adjuvant is used to stimulate the immune system, to hyperstimulate the immune system. And so it really stimulates your immune system in a very different way than, than the other vaccines. Um, and this is tested uh, using fetal cells. It's not created using fetal cells. So those are the those are the six vaccines that are sort of at the forefront of the US market. Um, so what do you do with this information and how do you work out if you want to be vaccinated or you don't want to be vaccinated and what the risks are and the benefits? So a voice for choice advocacy, I should have taken a step back at the beginning, our organization, it educates and advocates for informed choice and transparency of what goes into your body. If it's food, air, water, pharmaceuticals, cleaners, we want you to know what's in them and what the harms are and what the benefits are, and for you to make that choice of whether you want to put that into your body. And so for vaccines, our recommendation is you do a full risk to benefit analysis. So look at the disease and what is the risk of the disease? What are the adverse reactions to the disease? And then look at the vaccine and do the same thing. Now, one thing to remember is you can always get vaccinated, but you can never get unvaccinated. You can never take that vaccine out of your body. So you can, the mRNA technology, once it's in your body, you can take, you can't take it out of your body. Um, same thing with any other, you know, the adjuvants or the other things. You can never undo that. Um, so looking at, you know, I kind of put together lists of the, the, for the disease and for the vaccine of what types of things you need to question and, and find out for yourself. And people come to me and say, well, what do you think I should do? My answer is, I can't tell you what to do. You have to make this decision. You have to make an informed decision. If you're not making an informed decision, then I can't help you. I can't help you not, you know, get vaccinated or not get vaccinated because you need to do the research. You need to feel comfortable in yourself of the decision you're making. And everyone's decision is their own decision. If I'm 90 years old and I have, you know, I'm on three drugs and and I have an immunocompromising disorder, that's going to be a different decision than if I'm 
18, 19 years old and completely healthy, eating a healthy lifestyle, eating organic, you know, you're you're going to be in totally different places. And so for anyone to give advice saying, oh, you should definitely be vaccinated or you shouldn't be vaccinated, um, isn't it, nobody should be doing that. You have to make the decision for yourself. So just some things to take into consideration. We look at the COVID, the COVID virus survival rates. They are above 99% for everyone up until 69 years old. If you're 70 years and older, it falls to 94.6%. So that's your survival rate. So that's what you're working with. You And, and I should say, you have to get COVID first. Right now, about 2% of the population sometimes fluctuates to 5% of the population, depending on where you are, but have had COVID. And so your likelihood of getting COVID is actually quite low right now, um, especially with all the social distancing and mask wearing. And I'm not going to go into that. I could spend a whole another hour and a half on those things. Um, but your likelihood of getting COVID to begin with is relatively low. Your likelihood of surviving it is, is extremely high. The question is, you know, there are COVID treatments. So if you're going to not get the vaccine, you do need to work out. If you were to get COVID, what would you do? What And make sure you have that lined up. There's lots of information about different COVID treatments. You also need to think about the long-term health effects of COVID. So there are these people that have really long-term effects, lose their taste, smell uh, for a long time, um, have, have heart or other organ issues. So you really need to think about those as well as and, and balance that out as well as just your survival rate. One thing we don't know is how long immunity lasts. So if you had COVID, do, will you not get COVID ever again? Will you not get COVID in a year? Will you not get COVID in three months? We, the, the general thought now is about five months because that's the most when since we saw the influx of people getting COVID, those people haven't gotten COVID again or very few have. And then we're seeing variants come out. So if you've had COVID, if you're exposed to a variant, is your immune system, uh, you know, do you have immunity? Do you have antibodies for these different variants? It's That is unknown. And so some of this risk to benefit analysis is an unknown piece. Looking at the risk of vaccines and adverse reactions, um, there you go to VAERS. I've got another slide on that. Uh, VAERS is the reporting system. You can look at what vaccine reactions people, other people have had. But one of the things with these vaccines, especially what the ones that are new technology, we have no idea if they cause cancer, if they cause autoimmune disorders, if they cause infertility, fetal issues, mutagenicity. So if the RNA or the DNA in those vaccines, if that gets into your genes, um, we really have no idea on the long-term effects of these, these vaccines. We also don't know truly what antibody dependent enhancement. I've got another slide on that coming up, whether it causes that. We don't know how long immunity lasts. We don't know if there's immunity to the variants. Moderna has already said that the, you need a third booster, a third dose for some of the variants that are coming out. You know, are we going to have to have booster after booster after booster? Um, and they're not evaluated. So the clinical trials were not set up. This sounds crazy, but they were not set up to evaluate if they stop transmission. So you can still get the COVID vaccine. You may have no symptoms, but you could transmit it. And that's why you still have to wear a mask. You still have to social distance when you when you get the back after you get the vaccine. So my my advice there is to to absolutely look at the pros and the cons for yourself. One of the things to keep in mind, which I mentioned, is this antibody-dependent enhancement. This is something that we're seeing in the SARS coronavirus vaccines that were created probably five, six, maybe maybe 10 years ago now. 
basically for our immune system to work, you have to have, you have to produce neutralizing antibodies and not non-neutralizing antibodies. Non-neutralizing antibodies are one where the same type of genetic binding happens, but it fails to neutralize the virus. So it fails to get rid of the virus. And in some virus, if you have the non-neutralizing antibodies to the virus, if you then are exposed, so if you get the vaccine, you don't get the neutralizing antibodies, and then you're exposed to COVID, your body has a much greater hyperinflammatory uh, response and um, creates a cytokine storm, which basically knocks you out and, and can kill you. And as I said, in the SARS vaccine development, just in the clinical trials, the preclinical trials with the animals, those that happened and most of the animals died. And so the real question is, and we have no idea if you get the vaccine, if there is this antibody dependent enhancement and whether if you then get COVID, if, you're, if your body, you don't have these neutralizing uh, antibodies, if your body has a much worse effect um, and, and you can have much worse reaction to COVID. The other question is, does it work in the reverse? So if you have the first dose of the vaccine and you get COVID after the first dose, does that happen? Or if you've had COVID, crazily enough, if you've had COVID, they're saying, oh, if you have COVID more than three months ago, go get the vaccine. We have no idea. There weren't people in the clinical trials that had had COVID and then got the vaccine. You have no idea if you've had COVID, get the vaccine, if that creates the same antibody-dependent enhancement. If you're not getting it, one of the huge things, because the clinical trials haven't fully happened, we don't know the answers to way too many things here. Um, the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, I'll just quickly overview this. Uh, this is a passive system. So if you have a reaction, you or your doctor inputs the information here. Uh, with COVID, I think we're probably seeing more than regular vaccines entered here, but I still think that it's much lower than the actual adverse reactions that are happening. Uh, there was a study funded by the HHS that was done probably about 10 years ago that said fewer than 1% of adverse reactions to vaccines are reported to VAERS. And so you can just see the numbers that could be happening here. Um, below here, I put the number of vaccine reactions. This was, I think, until uh, the 22nd of, uh, of January. Um, you can see that there were about 8,000 non-serious adverse reactions. So 89% um, of, of the reactions were uh, non-serious and 11% were serious. The non-serious ones still mean that uh, those people couldn't function for the day or two after they got vaccines, uh, the vaccine. So, you know, non-serious to, to me looks like, oh, you know, it's probably just some pain in the arm. Most of those actually were somewhat debilitating and, and people couldn't do their regular, um, their regular tasks for the day. You'll also see that most people are female that had reactions, that have reported reactions. Now, that may be because females are more likely to report reactions. It may be because more healthcare workers are female and getting the vaccine more. Or it may truly be a signal that something in the, in the female autoimmune system is creating more uh, reactions. We don't know. Uh, another thing you should be aware of is that these vaccine manufacturers, the people giving the vaccines, have zero liability. You, If you get injured from this vaccine or from these vaccines, actually any vaccine, if it's on the childhood schedule, because that comes under a different no liability clause, but any of these COVID vaccines, you cannot sue anyone for it. 
Uh, you are also pretty much left on your own if you have a vaccine reaction because no one knows what to do. They understand that, oh, yeah, you had a reaction to the vaccine. But if your legs are swelling up or you're, uh, you've got a rash or any of the other things that if you look up on bears are happening, um, you go to the emergency room and the doctors and nurses just don't know what to do because they don't know how these vaccines work in your body. They don't know. I mean, they know uh methodologically how they work, but they don't know physiologically how they work. Uh, and so what you need to know is there's no liability. So there's no reason for these vaccine manufacturers to do an amazing job in the creation of these vaccines and to be really, really, you know, on top of and ensuring that there aren't, there are as few adverse events as possible. So where are we at today? And this is I'm sort of switching now from that's all the information on the vaccines and, you know, what what the story is behind them. And, you know, as I said, the biggest piece of takeaway is we just don't know. We don't have the data. We, these clinical trials are not done. You're part of a human experiment. So where are we today? <laughs> My big thing, if you haven't read 1984 or Brave New World, in the last year or two, please go back and read them. Or if you haven't ever read them, go read them. There, are, You can also get them on audio file, um, listen to them. We are, I believe, in a place where these two are coming together. And what does it equal? It equals the World Economic Forum. If you want to know the plan for the world in the next 10 years, just go to their website. They have it clearly all laid out. Um, I know this This. The greater reset is in response to that specifically because they are saying there's a great reset. They have it all laid out what they want to do in the next 10 to 20 years. Um, so, you know, I found it fascinating that it was all there in black and white. And if you haven't gone onto their website, I, I'm a big believer. You have to not just keep yourself in your own bubble. You have to look at what the other side is doing because you need to know what's going on in the world around you. You can't just live in your, you know, we've had some wonderful talks this week about, you know, permaculture and growing, living off the grid and, you know, all of that stuff. But you, you need to know what's going on out there in order to make sure that you can live your life. Um, and so my recommendation is these three things. You need to go look at them and read them um, and really understand what's going on in our world today. I'm going to say then we have, I'm going to skip that. Then we have, you know, us and people like like this week that are that are creating a system outside of that system. And that is wonderful. But for most of us, we still live within the system. And so people ask me, well, what about vaccine mandates? What are we going to do about them? There are federal mandates that could happen. There are state mandates that could happen. I personally don't think right now, first of all, we don't have enough vaccines to mandate the vaccines. I also don't think, I don't think it will happen on a federal level um, unless it's, for example, uh, you know, on federal land, like uh, Biden said, you know, he wants masking on federal land and they can do that. On a state level, can it be implemented? Yes. New York state, we've seen a bill brought forward that the local health officer can say whether you are, you know, whether they want everyone to be vaccinated or not. In California, we have a bill, uh, we have a law, AB 262, that was passed two years ago that allows our local health officers to basically take any action that they deem necessary when there is an epidemic. An epidemic is only three people or the potential of an epidemic happening. And so our local county health officers have that. So my recommendation is look in the state that you're in, what the 
what the laws are there and what how broad the health officers and the legislators, you know, what and the not really the legislators, but the governor uh, entities, what jurisdiction they have. Again, I don't think the state will mandate the COVID vaccine blanket mandate, but I can see them mandating it for uh, things like healthcare workers, children in schools, um, those types of things. I actually think the much bigger push is going to come from societal mandates. And we have seen this with masking. To me, I put out a video probably in July of last year, and I said, this is what you're going to see. You're going to see masking, and that is going to be the precursor for vaccines. So everybody was told to mask. You were shunned if you didn't mask. You can't go into stores if you don't mask. And I know there are people that are saying, oh, but I do. There are exceptions. For the most part, you cannot do things without being masked in order to go into into corporations. And by that, I mean stores, um, you know, fly concerts, those types of things, sporting events, those types of things. I think we are going to see, we're already seeing COVID-19 passports. They were put out this week at the DeVos um, agenda. Oops, am I not sharing anymore? Oops, uh, I think I'm I think I'm nearly done. So, <laughs> um, uh, so anyway, the, the DeVos agenda, um, we saw them having that. Um, I think the changes that we have, people are like, oh, once we get rid of COVID, we can go back to normal. There is no normal. We've been told by the media there is a new normal. The changes are here to stay like after 9-11 with the TSA and all of those things. Um, you know, I do think we we need to be aware of it. So the future of COVID, um, I've got two or three more slides. The future of COVID, my hypothesis is that we're actually going to see COVID cases reduce dramatically in the next six months. The real reasons are going to be that the COVID positive symptom definition will be changed to be stricter. So not as many people are getting COVID because of a definition change. The deaths with COVID are going to be reported less often and people are going to have to have died from COVID. So this last year, there were a lot of people who you know, had heart attacks, car crashes. If they had COVID, it was written as death with COVID. Um, it counted towards the COVID cases. I think those are going to come down. And the PCR tests that will be reduced below 35. So right now there's an issue with the PCR tests. There are a lot of false positives. Um, and I think we'll see that being stricter. And so the numbers will come down. None of those will be acknowledged and it will be the vaccine that has caused all this. We saw this, if you want a history of this, we saw it with polio, um, Read Dissolving Illusions, an amazing book. So how do you refuse the COVID vaccine? People come to me and they're like, my work said I had to refuse the COVID, you know, I had to take the COVID vaccine. My first answer is just say no decline the vaccine. We've seen healthcare workers, there are 50, 60% of healthcare workers saying no. And that is powerful. That's how we're going to get around this. We have to stand up and say no. Uh, there are options if you can't decline the vaccine uh, to get medical exemptions or sincere religious exemptions. The sincere religious exemptions, you can't just say, I have a religion that says I can't take a vaccine. We see a lot of people that submit them and don't get them right. I'm happy for you to email me if you want to know more about religious exemptions. But the other piece I will say, and we've heard this all week, we need to get out of the system. If your employer says you must be COVID vaccinated, the answer is no. And if they don't let you do that, then find another job. And I know that sounds, you know, fear, you know, 
it instills fear in a lot of people to be like, I mean, I've been, you know, a nurse all my life. I've been a teacher all my life. I don't, you know, I don't want to get the vaccine, but I don't want to lose my job. It is freeing when you get out of the system. And I say, please, please, please um, get out of the system <laughs> uh, if you can't say no or just say no. Um, last, last one, solutions. Research, research, and research some more on these vaccines, not just the COVID vaccines. I focused on them today, but a lot of this uh, spills over onto any vaccine that's out there. Uh, join your local vaccine choice groups. Every state has a good one um, or has, you know, has people that are doing things. Find out what bills are being passed in your state so that you're aware of what the restrictions are. Um, share the vaccine truth, the way we get out here, and I look at COVID-19 as a silver lining for all of us, not just on the vaccine issue, but people are questioning so much more and questioning the system, questioning the agenda. And so I think we have to look at it and we have to take those seeds that have been planted and water them. Um, as I said, just say no and get out of the system. Um, you're welcome to join our email list. Our website is a voiceforchoiceadvocacy.org. Um, you're welcome to email me. I'm uh, you can do. You can send it to info at a voice for choice advocacy.org. Um, but I really, you know, we have to get out there. We have to stand up because now's the time. If we, if you just get even a religious exemption, you're capitulating to the system. And we have to say no um, on so many of these issues, not just the vaccine issue. So that's all I have for today. Um, you know, as I said, I'm I am available by email is the best way to get to me. Um, either Christina at a voice for choice. Org or info at a voice for choice advocacy, uh, either of those. Um, but I and you know I'm I am happy. You can send me emails with questions. I do do a Q and A session about every um, two to three weeks, and I literally take any questions anyone asks me that are within our within our scope of uh, informed choice and transparency of what goes into your body. Um, but I'm happy. You know I take people ask me any question and I'll answer it. Um, so that's that's all I've got for today. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Christina, for joining us. I think you really shared a lot of solid information and um, a lot of that information is out there, but you got to go dig for it. And it's there's some misinformation out there and some disinformation. I think you really uh, brought it all together quite nicely for our audience. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Well, yeah, um, before we go on to our next speaker, I just wanted to share some ideas and some some solutions. I, I agree with Christina. I, I doubt that there's going to be a a federal mandate here in the United States. Now, some countries are pushing for that type of thing, and some countries are really leaning into the restrictions, like Australia, for example. Um, shout out to all the Aussies that are tuned in. I know there's a strong Freedom Cell network down there. But I think that the the avenue that they're going to take is more of this social engineering pressure and coercion, like Christina pointed out. And this is going to come in the form of limiting your travel with the common pass, right? This immunity passport, digital immunity certificate that Bill Gates talked about early on in the pandemic. And that is going to make it harder for people to travel and to get around. They're also going to put pressure on employers. The employers are going to put pressure on the employees. And there's even talk of not allowing people into federal buildings. Not sure why you would want to go in there anyway, but I don't know if you guess you get subpoenaed or, or you have some sort of federal crime. 
And then also there's even been talk about like grocery stores. You can't, well, you can't enter my establishment unless you have a vaccination. And so the thing that we need to be doing now and the thing that we ought to do anyway, regardless of all this stuff, is to build that tighter bond and that tighter network with one another such that, okay, they're starting to pressure so we can't fly. Well, I, I fly for my business. I fly to visit my parents or whatever. It's like, all right, well, then we're just going to roll with old Dolores Cahill and we're going to start our own airline or we're going to put some money together and perhaps buy charter passes for certain jets or the Freedom Cell Network is going to chip in or someone's going to see a business opportunity. They're going to buy an RV or some passenger buses and rent them out to the community or whatnot to travel within the states, right? Or when it comes to an employment, we're shifting away towards the counter economy. We're shifting away towards businesses. There's over 15,000 people in the Freedom Cell Network. There needs to start. We would love to see some businesses pop up that cater to the Freedom Cell Network, right? And then they're not letting us into the grocery restore oh that's fine after wednesday's talk by jack and uh, the, the others we feel inspired to grow our own food or participate in local decentralized food networks so we need to be of that mindset because the greater reset agenda is only going to accelerate leading up to 2030 and we too need to accelerate our actions to decentralize to opt out to be prepared and to be resilient. So the time is now. I invite you to join the Freedom Cell Network. There's going to be a call. There's a weekly call every Sunday. It's real low key. It's a great opportunity for you to get tuned in, ask questions. It's a Freedom Cell Network weekly conference call. You can get the details at freedomcells.org, freedomcells.org, sign up, click on events. That's every Sunday. And there's a lot of great people that host it to get you tapped into the network. And then finally, on February 21st, we're going to be hosting our eighth international conference call. The last one had scores and scores of people. It was really powerful to see so many people from all over the world. So as this tyranny rises, it's up to us to counter it by working together, building community, and being prepared with innovative solutions. All right, I'm going to toss it over to old D bros to introduce our next speaker. Thanks, everyone, for sticking around. All right, sorry about that. Thank you, John, for that. I invite everybody to uh, also, as John said, to join the Freedom Cell Network. Somebody said it earlier, I think it was Teresa was talking about how do we find each other and well, we created a tool for that. You can go to the freedomcells.org. You can create a profile, put your interests, your goals. You can search the members map, the cells map, and find people in your area. Start getting organized on whatever topics that are uh, interesting and informative to you. And I do want to say that the article I just had on the screen was actually written by John. It's on his website, Live Free Now. Uh, live free dot, wait, live free now dot show, and then you can find this piece that I put together a couple months back, no vaccine, no job, what's your plan, talking about the, this, these ideas as well. So we've been exploring this concept. This one's at theconsciousresistance.com. We've been exploring these concepts for you know over almost a year now, coming up to a year since this whole COVID thing began. And we're now at a point where immunity passports, a lot of these things, these considerations are coming in. So we, that's why we're talking about solutions. And Christina presented a very well-rounded um, presentation to get us thinking about these solutions. Now, our next speaker we're going to talk about is going to bring the solutions back to food and how we take care of ourselves. Because I also agree, and you've heard me talk about and others talk about this idea of exiting and building from the system. Rather than trying to vote them out or let's go storm the Capitol, why don't we exit from their system and build something better? And she talked about opting out of the vaccines, but also if we 
get blocked out of the grocery stores because you refuse a vaccine or you don't want to take a PCR test or whatever, then you're going to have to learn how to grow your own food or at least have those networks with other people in your community. And that's what we're going to talk about now. Last thing I want to say before we introduce our next speaker is please do continue to send in your watch party photos. We've got lots of awesome cat photos of people watching with their cats. We're going to pop those on screen real quick. And we've got people I want to shout out to Zimbabwe to I think I saw Romania um, all across Europe, all across the U.S. as well. Um, we can get the cat photos on the next one. We'll bring Jonathan on now. But yeah, my point is there's lots of people watching from all over the world. And we like seeing you guys' faces and showing people that, hey, people are gathering. You know, people are coming together despite restrictions. So let's talk about food now. Let's talk about how we can survive and thrive in this age, this era that we're facing and the face of the Great Reset and how we can build a better world. Let's bring on Jonathan Ramirez from Thriving Earth Farms and hear what he has to say to us. His talk today is subsistence and survival in the age of instability. Thank you for joining us, Jonathan. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Thank you for being here. Yeah, so um, first I just want to say thank you to Derek and John for all the work you're doing, putting this stuff uh, together and anyone who's behind the scenes working on stuff. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Um, yeah, this year we've kind of been launched into uh, a world that has made a lot of things apparent to us about um, the instability and fragility of our food systems. Um, so I'm going to try and share my screen here. Um, and there we go. All right. Let's see, did that come up all right? There we go. Yeah, so I just finished getting this uh, full screen set up. Yeah, so I can't really get it to go on the full screen, but you guys see it. So that that's kind of what's important. Um, yeah, so I have a farm in, just outside of Nashville, Tennessee, and it's called Thriving Earth Farm. And we do a lot of different farming, homesteading, survival uh, sort of things. And throughout our time doing what we do, we've kind of learned and looked at uh, what the elements and the pillars of resilience are. Um, so I'm just going to talk about that. I'm not probably not going to get into everything that I want to say, but uh, I hope that some of this stuff is valuable to uh, both the, the person who's just getting into uh, homesteading and survival and, you know, even the more experienced people as well. Um, this is sort of what we're, we're going to talk about and get into. Um, and let's just go for it. <clears throat> so the bad news, uh, I'll start off with the bad news. I don't want to be too doom and gloom because there's a lot of good things to look at, but um, the realistic portion of, of where we're at is something that we need to look at. So humanity is at a very unprecedented time in human history because we are at a, an unprecedented level of instability and fragility in our survival systems, right? We have survival systems that are dependent on chemicals, uh, global centralized uh, transport systems, electricity, gas, oil, and these big sort of monolithic corporations and regulations from government. Um, so that that's there's something incredibly fragile about that, about monoculture, agriculture, and about uh, you know just our entire system. Um, there's other things that are also making our situation more fragile, 
um, such as the fact that we have to also deal with uh, increased toxicity in our landscape, uh, fragmented communities, loss of knowledge and skills, and the sort of social political landscape. Um, all that being said, humanity has faced a lot of social, political upheaval, civil unrest, um, and a lot of issues in the past, but never before has humanity um, basically been at a situation where we've been so removed from our ability to survive off the land, right? After the Industrial Revolution and the subsequent Green Revolution and the Tech Revolution um, that occurred in agriculture, um, more and more people have become removed from our actual subsistence and survival from the earth. So never before have we been this fragile. And that's, that's sort of, it's sort of a scary thing to look at, but it's also a very important thing for us to look at too. And it can kind of gear how we move forwards in response to what's happening in the world today. Because obviously the people at the Great Reset, um, they have one idea. And uh, if we don't want that idea, we got to show what the other ones are. Um, the good news is that uh, everything we've ever needed to survive and thrive has always been here. I want to make emphasis to say that um, you know, if we don't need to invent all these new technologies or any sort of, you know, crazy new systems or anything like that. We've, we've always had everything that we need to survive and thrive, right? We, we have an earth which sustains life. And if we team with it, we can be supported. So that's the good news. Another part of the good news is that it's all in our genetic memory to be a part of the earth and to work with the earth. We all come from a tribe. I heard uh, Derek Bros say that uh, on the first day, like we all come from a tribe. We all come from an ancestry that saw the earth as the provider of all life and lived in that way. So part of what the good news is, is we can draw from that memory and we can, we can kind of come back home uh, based on that knowledge. Um, and then uh, the other thing is that the illusion is becoming really clear and uh a lot of people are yearning for solutions and yearning for truth as the illusion becomes more and more apparent. So we're at a crisis moment. There's a lot of potential for what we can do. We can harvest all the lost knowledge. We can come in with solutions and, and everything that we need is here waiting for us to do that. Um, so what is it, what is the essence of what we need um, as far as physical uh, sustainability and survival. What's the essence of it? Um, I think we need a massive push for more and more people to work towards fulfilling our needs of survival in regenerative and decentralized ways, right? So we don't need more people working for AI or Google or Citigroup or, you know, the Fed or whatever. We need more people working towards meeting our physical survival um, in regenerative and decentralized ways, because in my view and from what I've come to see is that we can't ever be free unless we live in that sort of way. We're always going to be dependent on these fragile systems if we don't find a way to live without them. So that's what, you know, the solution oriented nature of this whole event is about, but going beyond, uh, sort of, uh, the like prepper sort of side of it of like, Oh, we're very fragile. We need to, we need to change our systems, right? The more sort of reactive way. There's also the other 
the other side of it, which is really sort of where I started coming from um, after I started waking up to the whole political side of things is that uh, it's, it's really a part of our sacred human purpose and a part of our sacred responsibility to live in harmonious uh, ways with the earth and decentralized localized, regenerative, diverse systems is, is actually how we do that. Um, so it's not just about, you know, preventing catastrophe, though it is. It, it's also about, you know, living with honor and living with that sacred responsibility. Um, so within sustainability uh, and homesteading and survivalism and all that stuff, there's a few different areas of focus. Uh, if you were just in the forest and you were in some emergency survival situation, you might just think about food, water, and shelter. But if we're thinking about restructuring our society in a way that, um, you know, promotes true sustainability, we have to look at a few different other, a few different areas um, besides just food, water, and shelter. Um, so, yeah, so we need to look at health and food is health. So that's a major thing. But how that informs us is the diversity of food. And it's not just about survival. It's about producing food that is diverse and super healthy, right? Then talking about shelters, right? And, uh, you know, where we're living, a lot of the way that our homes and shelters um, have been created uh, is they're very toxic. Um, they're not very protective uh, and they're unsustainable. So an example is most people heat their homes or cool their homes with electricity or gas or propane or oil or, you know, a few of a lot of different unsustainable ways of, of kind of keeping them protected from the elements. Right. And we have to reexamine that. And that's, that's why the power of natural building is, is really important. Um, the other thing to think about too with shelters is maybe we can build shelters that protect us from, EMF or protect us from other uh, kind of intrusions into, into our life. So shelter is really important. Uh, another area of focus is medicine. We need to get back into herbal medicine and we have to be able to, to produce that locally and sustainably. Um, then I have sustain, sustainable essential products. What does that mean? That means any sort of tool or item that we use uh, to keep our homesteading systems going um, and being able to produce those in a good regenerative way, right? If we need harvest baskets and the global industrial infrastructure is collapsing and we can't get plastic harvest totes, how are we going to, how are we going to have things to harvest in, right? We can make baskets. It's a part of our tradition and they're, they're natural baskets made from natural materials around you are super beautiful. And also, uh, tools, same thing with tools. How are we going to produce hand tools? How are we going to produce um, all the different things that we need to keep our systems going sustainably? Um, so that's a huge important area of focus. Uh, next is clean water. How do we clean our water? How do we have multiple water uh, systems to keep our survival going, right? If the uh, city water gets contaminated or if the city water um, is based on a pumping mechanism that goes down. How are people going to get water, right? Uh, we have to look at that and we have to examine the different ways that we can do that. 
Another area of focus is energy. So what is energy? Um, mainly we need energy to power electronics, right? And that's, that's mostly a need and, or that's mostly a want and not a need. Um, but the things that we do need energy for is for food preservation and for um, heating and cooling, basically. Uh, so there's other ways to meet those needs of survival, of preserving our food and of heating and cooling our homes besides electricity, which is what we use now. Um, so we got to think about energy. And if we do want to have electricity, how do we do it in resilient and sustainable ways? So we got to think about that. Um, another thing to think about is waste or fertility management. Um, composting, if, if you're in an area that has sewers and the sewer system gets compromised, or um, if you're in a country where those systems uh, have collapsed, how do we deal with that situation in uh, ways that are not creating you know, health issues, basically? We have to look at that. And then, of course, spiritual survival is also a part of survival. Um, but I won't talk too much on that because I think my focus here is uh, sustainability and homesteading. So um, next. Yeah, so a lot of people have heard a lot of these different terms that I have up here. Regenerative farming, organic gardening, agroforestry, tree crops, uh, foraging, all that sort of stuff. Um, and there might be some people out there who say, Animal systems are evil and we have to get rid of them. Or there might be people that say animal systems and tree crop systems are good, but grain agriculture and annual systems are the most destructive thing for the earth, right? And we can, we can kind of get into these dogmatic camps. But I think if we're actually really going to become sustainable and if we're actually going to become resilient as the system gets more and more fragile. And if we don't want to be dependent on whatever system they create for us, we're going to have to use every single tool that we have at our disposal um, to get sustainable. So that's going to, every single one of these things, if you want to take a, a screenshot of all these different things, these are the things that we need to look at and start learning about and start understanding. And these are all the things that we need to put in our toolkit for bringing our society from this very unsustainable, fragile state to a state of sustainability. Um, so as far as uh, steps go for the beginners, um, I wanted to hit these points before I go into the pillars of resilience, um, because I think it's important to just get an idea of where you can start. Um, for the beginner, I think one of the most underrated kind of important steps for the beginner is learning how to wild forage. Um, I think realistically that's the lowest hanging fruit is to go out into your local ecology and to say, what is the natural world already providing and how can I ride that wave? Right. You would be surprised how much is out there. Um, a good example of like one of the most abundant wild forage crops that exist out there are acorns from oak trees. Um, oaks are pretty common throughout most of the world and can be a huge staple crop for people. And it's, it's often something that's overlooked. Um, and that's just one example. There's walnuts and hickory nuts and beech nuts and 
some areas, hazelnuts and berries and mushrooms and fruits and uh, all sorts of stuff that we can draw from. And I think that that's the lowest hanging fruit. You don't have to develop a system. You don't really need many tools. You just go out there, you get it, and you use your knowledge to process them. Um, those are those are that's maybe the the biggest first step that I think most people can take, um, especially if you have limitations on what you can do. Uh, the the next thing that I didn't really hear spoken about um, in some of the other talks was the ability to volunteer on a local organic farm in your area. Um, I think even if it's just one day a week or or one day every other week or whatever. Um, it's such a super powerful tool in, number one, becoming more sustainable because likely if you're volunteering a full long day on an organic farm, they're going to give you a share a share of their farm, uh, a CSA share or, or some vegetables or something, and, and likely they'll even give you more. So you'll have food coming in through that, but then also you're going to learn more working alongside people who are already doing it than you'll ever learn from reading books and watching videos and and sort of being in your head about it. If you're out there on an organic farm, you know, working, uh, it's really going to jumpstart you in, in your knowledge if you're a beginner. Uh, the next thing is learn from the elders. You know, there's a lot of older people who still have skills on how to do a lot of this stuff, whether it's you know, the old timer down the road who knows how to work with mules still, or, you know, the, the old woman next door that uh, still keeps a huge garden and has learned all of these little tricks of the trade. It's not to say that uh, everything they say is, is gold. You know, there, there's a lot of older people who are stuck in old paradigms about how to do things and stuff. But all that being said, there's, there's wisdom to be gathered and, and we should do that. Um, next is, yeah, you know, just learning more, reading books on permaculture and homesteading, taking a permaculture design course, which I think is a really good idea, um, to kind of kickstart your knowledge, uh, on homesteading and such. Um, the other thing too, is if you can't, if, if you can't buy a piece of property, start a big garden, raise all these animals, but you want to make a step and you don't know where to go, um, an option is joining a, an eco community join or joining people who are already doing it and becoming a beneficial part of someone else's system. Uh, if you don't have the tools or the capacity to uh, just like start from the ground up on your own, whether it's money or time or whatever, join something, you know, people are always looking for extra help. People are looking for people who resonate with them and want to do the type of work um, and are excited to learn. Um, so that's, that's another option too. If you do want to start something, obviously start small and start a garden, raise, start raising chickens and ducks, start learning some, uh, traditional crafts. You know, I think traditional crafts are a really great tool for, um, becoming more sustainable, right? Learn how to build things yourself and learn how to build things yourself with traditional tools. Um, and that, that can help you become more sustainable. Uh, the last major step for the beginner, I think, is making a list of all the different products that you consume in a year and then coming up with a plan on how to produce or obtain them locally or sustainably. So uh, it's not to say that you have to produce all your food or even like 70% of your food 
yourself. It's to say, uh, hey, I can I can do this right here, right now where I'm at. Uh, but how can I obtain the, those other things from, let's say, a local farm? Who in the area has grass-fed, rotationally grazed, organic um, dairy products? Or who has... Uh, a bunch of fruits at the in the fall, and how can I how can I get some of that? And really, sort of making a plan on how to get sustainable. Um, so yeah, those are good steps for the beginner. And I'll also say that there are some ways, there are some things that are much easier to sustain in a diet than other things. And you might find in your local ecology, in your local situation, that. It's easier for you to get grass-fed beef than it is for you to get fruit or it is for you to get organic, sustainably raised grains, right? So you might have to adjust your diet a little bit to become more resilient um, in the face of a fragile global system. Um, so then there are some actionable steps for the experience for people who are already farming, people who already have you know, big gardens and our homesteading. And, uh, you know, there's always ways that we can become more resilient and sustainable. Um, one example is community. A lot of times people start a homestead and the first thing that they realize is that they just can't do it all. And the manageability of what they're trying to do comes into question, right? So you can either reduce what you're doing or you can engage in community. You can bring people into your project, give them a role, give them a space, or you can connect with the larger community that's outside of yourself and plan and communicate and grow with them in a way that makes the whole unit a little bit more sustainable. That's, that's sort of what the freedom cells are about, um, but you can you can also bring that in and, and get a little bit uh, more intimate and become, let's say, like an eco-village. Um, next is entertaining draft power as a tool for sustainability. So a lot of annual agriculture, vegetable production, grain production, etc., cetera, um, are all heavily dependent on tractors, right? Small systems can be maintained uh, easily just by human power. Right. But if you want to scale up those systems and be more productive and you don't want to rely on a tractor that if it breaks and you can't get apart, your whole system falls apart. That's not resilient. You know, you need something that's a little bit more resilient and draft power, which is the power of horses, mules and oxen and a few other things. Um, you know, those are very resilient systems because. Horses and oxen and mules can be replicated naturally through their own biological reproduction. And they can be sustained not off of oil that needs to be mined out of the earth and shipped all around the world, but from grass and from hay. And, uh, you know, horses and draft, pa draft power in general as a method of uh, becoming more resilient is, I think, a very dramatically underestimated tool and uh, something that's really important. When when we look at indigenous cultures and and tribal and uh, traditional farming communities, we'll find that uh, animals are very our animals are very resilient part of their system. Um, next, for the experienced person, for actionable steps is 
you know, just asking the question, if the oil stopped flowing or the power went down, could you carry on un unhindered? You know, if the uh, power grid goes down and all of your stored vegetables are in a, an electrically powered cooler, uh, you might run into some problems. So maybe we get some solar panels to, uh, you know, power that unit, right? Or maybe uh, you don't have the money for those solar panels. Then what do you do, right? Or maybe you have solar panels, but there was a big windstorm or a hurricane, like what happened in Puerto Rico, where a bunch of uh, solar panels got damaged. And, you know, now you don't have a way of keeping that food cool. So what do you do? And that gets into more passive systems, right? Into root cellars and food preservation and, and all that sort of stuff. So always asking these different questions of, you know, if the system went down, how would the different elements of my system system carry on unhindered? That's the most important question for all uh, experienced growers moving forward. Um, the next thing is don't wait for your systems to, to, don't wait for tomorrow to get your systems down, right? So if your system has a weakness, don't wait for a collapse to, or for some major hiccup in the system to kind of work on your systems and get them more sustainably, because then you're going to be, you know, panicking, right? If, if you can't get gas or oil or fuel and you have this big, you know, production scale agricultural system, you're not going to be able to keep it going if you don't have, you know, tractors, gas, oil, or draft animals, right? You can buy a draft animal, but you know, you don't get that system down overnight. It takes time. It takes training. It takes work. Um, so as much preparing that we can do now, the better. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so moving on to uh, the pillars of resilience, right? What, what makes a resilient farm or homestead? And looking at all the different farms and systems that I've seen, I think passive systems that are diverse, redundant, and regenerative are the most resilient to all the different things that can be thrown at us, whether from nature or from the economy or from political forces or social forces, you know, those are going to be the most uh, powerful systems moving forward um, and the most resilient. So what, what's, what does that look like more specifically, right? So diversity, right? We need to, like we were saying earlier, we need to use every tool available. Not only do we need diversity in the things that we produce, right? We're not just producing vegetables. We're producing fruits and nuts. We're producing animal products. We're producing other products for survival. Um, we also need diversity in scales, right? For some people, it's going to make more sense for them to just have a backyard garden and communicate with other larger scale growers, right? But for some people, it's going to make sense to have larger scale agroforestry systems, right? We need a diversity of scales. Um, the next thing we need is a diversity of uh, genetics too, right? We need, if we look at the average American diet, we, we see that, um, you know, there's really a small number of things that people eat as far as uh, grains, fruits, vegetables, and such goes. The more we diversify in our diet, the more diversity will be in the landscape around us if we're growing those things, right? And the more things that we grow in our environment, the more diverse the ecology will be and the more 
diverse nutrients we'll have to take into our body. So diversity is important. The other reason diversity is important is because if one element of that system fails, then the system will be able to carry on and still produce things. So an example is, you know, most of the commodity agriculture in the United States has been reduced to corn and soy, right? Monoculture farming. And most of it's not even for food production, really. A lot of it's exported. A lot of it is for ethanol. And a lot of it is for those horrible, you know, confined feeding operations. But if a disease comes out, comes around and wipes out that corn, and that's all we got on hundreds of thousands of acres, we have a real problem, right? So diversity means not putting all our eggs in one basket. Um, moving on to redundancy, it's also kind of in another way, not putting all your eggs in one basket. An example is, uh, let's say, water systems. Here on our farm, uh, we have city water, but we also have a well and we also have a spring, right? So there's redundancies in our system. And we also have rainwater catchment. So that's four levels of redundancy to meet our water needs. And redundancy makes the system resilient. Um, and redundancy and diversity really super go hand in hand. Uh, Besides redundancy, uh, regenerative capacity, right? So does your system have the ability to build soil organic matter and nutrients, retain and slow water, and grow in diversity and health over time? That's really important. We could do all of these things. We could have the vegetable garden. We could have the livestock. We can have a dairy system. We can have all of this sort of stuff. But if we're not managing it, regeneratively and sustainably, then we're just depleting our resources, right? There is so many farms in the United States where you could go and see just total soil erosion, uh, loss of organic matter, overgrazing, um, which le leads to soil compaction and further erosion and pollution of our watersheds. You know, when we're doing this stuff, we need to have regenerative capacity because regenerative systems, systems that Build or, san or build organic matter and build diversity in their systems. Um, if there's a drought, they'll last longer. They'll be more healthy. If uh, there is too much rain, they have a way of, of dealing with it. The earth is like a sponge; it can it can drain. It's not compacted. Um, the 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 water can infiltrate into the ground. Um, you know, it's really important for us to have healthy ecosystems because healthy ecosystems produce a healthy diversity of food and thus healthy humans. So regenerative capacity is super important. Uh, then we have, you know, self-sufficiency, right? So what does that mean when looking at a homestead system? Uh, and that asks the question is, can the system continue without the industrial infrastructure, right? So for example, are you saving seeds not to say you have to save all your seeds because you might have a neighbor that's saving one type of seed and you might be saving another type of seed or whatever but if the system goes down and you can't purchase your seeds online how does it keep perpetuating itself it can't you're kind of shut down the other thing is closed loop fertility you know and that goes back to sort of regenerative systems that you know, increase soil organic matter, right? We need to have closed loop fertility. We need to produce our own compost as much as we can. And we need to 
uh, divert waste streams and put them back into the landscape as fertility. One example of what we do here is um, we have tree companies drop off wood chips on our property and that slowly decomposes. So part of that will decompose and become rich uh, humus, uh, humus rich compost that we can add to our systems. Um, but also we can use it as mulch to protect the system and to break down over time as sort of like a slow release, slow release nutrient. And otherwise that would have been waste in, in, you know, sort of the local system, they would have to pay to get rid of it. So we have to harvest that fertility and use it wisely. Um, the next thing is sort of going back to that low tech, um, sort of self-sufficiency, right? Are we, re are we reliant on electricity and consumables? Are we reliant on things uh, like, you know, plastic seed trays that we won't be able to get one day or, or that maybe ethically we don't totally agree with using, you know? Um, we have to be self-sufficient. Is there a way to maybe instead do soil blocks or to um, start seeds in, uh, in the ground and then transplant them out from there? Uh, there's a lot of different ways that we can examine our systems and make sure that they're not relying on things that are bought in. Um, the next pillar of homestead resilience is passivity. Um, yeah, low-tech solutions are, are usually the most resilient. Um, even for like heating your home, for example, uh, if it gets cold in your climate and your house heats off of electricity, uh, that's a pretty fragile system. If a windstorm happens and the power goes out, so does your heat. That's like super fragile, right? Whereas if you heat with a wood stove, which is a very passive system, um, all you have to do is go out into the forest and get some wood. You know, if you manage the wood sustainably, if your house is built sustainably with passive design, then it's quite easy to heat your home, you know, in, in one of these pictures right here, uh, the bottom left corner is a house of my friend Cliff Davis over at Pig and Leaf Farm, also, or formerly known as Spiral Ridge Permaculture. And that home is built with uh, a passive design, right? It's a straw bale house with a living roof, and it's incredibly insulated. So the amount of energy that's required to keep it heated and cooled is very low. And it's cooled naturally. He doesn't have an HVAC unit. He doesn't have central AC. He has this uh, super insulation from the elements outside of his house that is keeping it at a steady temperature. And when it gets really cold, all he uses is a wood stove to heat up and it's resilient. No matter what happens outside of his system, it's going to keep going. Uh, next is repairability. Um, our are our tools repairable and the, and the things that we use to keep our system going, are they repairable, right? Going back to a tractor and, and to be clear, it's not to say that you shouldn't use a tractor or you shouldn't use a chainsaw, you know, or you shouldn't get that sawmill. I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is that uh, to have these underlying systems that are repairable, right? If a tractor goes down because a piece of it is broken and you can't get that piece, then your system is down. That's not resilient. If you have a horse with a cultivator that's made of wood and hard steel, um, 
it's actually pretty easy to fix that just by going out into the forest and getting some wood and repairing it. If you have to fix the steel portions, you can use a forge that's powered by air and charcoal that you can make from wood and you can repair it. That's a resilient system. It can keep going if the system uh, has a hiccup or collapses. So we have to be able to rep repair as much of the tools and, and elements of our system that we can. Next is uh, manageability. <clears throat> so are we able to actually keep what we're doing going? Um, given whatever restraints and capacity that we have, right? We all have limitations. That's a realistic thing, right? One of the most common things for homesteaders when they first start off is that they just start doing everything. They're like, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And then everything falls apart. And they're like, well, let's hold on to this and hold on to this and hold on to this. And it might just be a natural sort of progression of, of how it works when you get into homesteading. But understanding what we can actively manage is something that we should think about. And we should also think about, uh, you know, how our capacities to sustain our system can change over time. So over time, we're going to be, as our knowledge and our skills and our tools increase, we're going to be able to do more over time. But then again, if you, you know, have have a kid you know if you have a new kid that's born into your family and you know you don't want to neglect the child and you have too much going on you might have to sacrifice some parts of your system to tend your child <laughs> you know so it can go forward but it can also go back in time right and a way to increase our capacity always is the possibility of community right the community can always and the possibility of human power to come together and the possibility of tools to help us out, um, both physical tools and community tools uh, to help us out, that can always increase our ability to expand our systems and manage it sustainably. Um, another pillar of homesteading is uh, productivity and efficiency, right? We don't want to be putting all sorts of energy out there and not be getting that much in return. We have to think about efficiency. And the last pillar of uh, homestead resilience is security. The social political landscape is largely unpredictable at our time, and we just have to be prepared for that. And that could be a whole talk on its own. Um, so I won't go too much into that, but it's definitely something that you should think about. Um, some elements that might exist on a resilient homestead are, you know, the following. The first uh, four or five are basically substitutes for electric food storage systems like refrigerators, right? So in all the old homesteads around here in Tennessee, you'll always find a root cellar, a place where they could, you know, keep the stored good, the goods, the canned goods, um, the fermenting goods, the root crops, all that stuff. A root cellar is super important. Smoker, right? Can we smoke our foods? It's not, you don't just smoke meats. You can smoke other things to preserve them as well. Um, then curing systems, curing, uh, curing meats, fermenting vegetables, you know, those are, those are elements of a resilient system, right? Not relying on that sort of, uh, electric infrastructure, uh, passive drying systems. So like a solar food dehydrator, um, 
dry storage spaces. That's one of the most underrated things for people who get into farming and homesteading. It's just space to put all your crops where they're not getting affected by the elements. That's super important. Um, a passive greenhouse <clears throat> for propagating plants and growing through the winter is uh, a really great element to have in a resilient homestead, um, but it's also not 100% essential, right? You can grow within your growing season and just maximize on that and have it last through the winter um, and if, if you can't build a greenhouse. Um, so then vegetable gardens, uh, staple crop production, so like grains, potatoes, sweet potatoes, uh, winter squashes, pumpkins, things that are gonna gonna really kind of get you through the winter and produce a lot a lot of bulk carbohydrates, proteins, stuff like that. Um, so the vegetable garden might be on a smaller scale. The staple staple crop production might be on a larger scale. Then there's livestock systems uh, for meat. Also, livestock systems in the form of dairy systems. Um, I know Will Tuttle was talking about how sort of <sighs> against he is, uh, you know, animal systems, and I and I feel that compassion, and I and I understand where he's coming from, but also simultaneously, one of the most resilient systems that you can have on a farm is a dairy system. Because, for example, if you have a grass-fed dairy cow, a few of them, right, or even, uh, you know, a grass-fed goat system, right, which is what we have done historically here, um, that system can 100% of the time be producing both fertility for the landscape and a product that you can survive and sustain off of, right? Milk yogurt, cheese, meat, and it can produce milk, yogurt, and cheese all the time, every single day. Every single day it's giving you a product. So if everything else fails, you got that. As long as you can give them grazable space and hay for the winter time, the system can carry on. And that's why that system has been so important for uh, traditional farming cultures. Um, next is fruit, nut, trees, uh, bushes and vines, and also herbs and perennials. Those are all important things um, to have in sort of a di diverse permaculture system. Uh, another thing that people often forget about is woodland, right? For for firewood and for craft. Like a lot of times when people homestead, they either go to buy a property that has no woods at all. It's just open, cleared land. Um, and that has benefits for starting new fruit trees and nut trees but you don't have any firewood or craft material. Um, and then on the other side, you have people who buy properties that are almost 100% woodland. And if they want to plant a fruit tree or plant a garden, they got to cut down a bunch of trees to do it. You know, so having that diversity is super important. Um, obviously community, we already talked about. Uh, natural systems for heating and cooling are important, like we already talked about. Low-tech solutions, transition tools and technologies. So like maybe the solar panel, maybe the rainwater catchment with the gravity fed irrigation system on um, seed saving. We already talked about is super important and closed loop fertility. Um, I think I'm coming up on a time limit, but let me see if I can do a few more here. Um, 
Yeah. So traditional and indigenous cultures, uh, you know, like I was saying in the beginning of the talk, we don't have to invent a super huge amount of new things um, to, to kind of get where we need to go. We can look towards these historic cultures to sort of get there. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that we can, can look to. Um, I think Derek popped up and my time period is coming to an end. So uh, let me take the... I do want to ask Jonathan, though, uh, yeah. this isn't your time, and we appreciate everything you've just presented. I mean, thank you so much. There's lots of valuable information. Would it be possible for us to get your presentation and maybe make it available on the website when we upload your talk so that people who want to see the full thing can click through it? Is that possible? Yeah, absolutely. I'd totally be happy to share that with you guys 100%. Awesome. Well, we thank you so much for joining us again. It's Jonathan Ramirez with Thriving Earth Farm in Tennessee. Thank you so much, brother, for sharing your knowledge. Appreciate it. All right, everyone, we're going to continue our conversation. We are here for day six of the Greater Reset Activation. This is our final day over the, that we've had over the last week. We're going to bring John back on with us, and John will be introducing uh, our next guest. I just wanted to say again, did we get the cat pictures? Did we get the, Okay, let's show these watch parties. There's a couple people watching with just their cat, and I told them, like, look, even if it's just you and your cat, yeah, we'll still show it. Here's the internet somebody. Cat. All right, there's one cat one. I think we got another one. There's another cat one. Somebody All laying right. down with the cat. And then we had some, there's a third cat picture. <laughs> and then we had, I think somebody from California. Yeah, this get these, this group here. Uh, I can't remember where they're at. And then we had one more in California. I don't know if you got that one, but either way, we're, we're thankful to everybody who is watching, no matter where you're watching from. And you still have time to send in your watch parties today while we're live. We're going to go now to our last speaker, John, go ahead. Hey, thanks, Derek. Those were some beautiful NR cats. So, uh, yeah, our next speaker, we are so glad that we were able to add him to the fray. He has done such amazing work in the realm of waking people up. And it's not just waking people up, which a lot of documentarians do. They just stop there. But it's waking people up with great information and then activating them and encouraging them to get involved in the effort to create a more free society. Of course, Foster Gamble is our next speaker, and he is behind Thrive One and Thrive Two. He and his lovely wife, Kimberly, they're a dynamic duo. And these documentaries have been viewed by very, very, very many people. I'll let him share exactly how many. And it just presents a lot of the problems that many people are familiar with, but it presents it in a very consumable fashion. And then it gets into the whole energy aspect, the toroidal, and how that just interconnects everything in life. And if we can tune into that, then we can really find a bunch more harmony in our relationships with ourselves, with each other, and with the planet. That's been a big theme for, for the greater reset. So we're going to go ahead and bring Foster Gamble on. Thank you so much, Foster, for joining us. And um, he's going to share a little bit about the documentary, I, I assume. I want to encourage you, go to the thegreaterreset.org, thegreaterreset.org. If you click support our work, we actually set up an affiliate account so you can check out Thrive 2, and then we get a little kickback so we can keep bringing you these amazing events. Thank you so much, Foster, for joining us. We're really excited to hear from you. Uh, it's my great pleasure. John, it, it's uh, so awesome what you guys are doing with this whole Greater Reset thing. So I really congratulate you and Derek. And I've just been having a blast this week watching the uh, all these amazing presentations. I haven't gotten a chance to see all of them yet, but I've seen most of them. And it's, it's just not only inspiring, it's grounding, it's empowering. This is exactly what we need. And 
And that's that's what I mainly want to talk about today. And I'll talk a little bit about the movie uh, uh, shortly. But let, let me just talk first about uh, the context for the way I see the context for this summit uh, and the work that we're doing at Thrive. Now, with your audience, I don't need to uh, say much to convince people that we are in a pickle. <laughs> you know, we are, in my opinion, in a communist techno-fascist takeover. And it's not just the United States. It's not just Europe. It's not just the UK. It's not just China. This is global for the first time ever. Everything is upside down. So the news, uh, healthcare, uh, so-called leadership and money and justice, so-called elections, um, education, all of them are actually exactly the opposite of what we would think of as the essence of the meaning of those words. So what's happened recently, just in the, you know, with the, the, the so-called pandemic and then with the election uh, fiasco in the United States, um, I think it's made it clear, certainly clear to me, and I think a lot of people that I'm talking to, that we cannot depend on a president, uh, on an army, uh, on the Asian dragons, on uh, no government institutions. If they help us out, then fantastic. That'll add tremendous leverage to what we're all trying to do. But we can't count on that. The essence, in my opinion, is we have to reclaim our power and then we need to synergize our activities voluntarily with others of coherent virtue. Frankly, we need to get off our couches and even leave our digital screens now and then and get together um, in person like this conference, but in person also and in your local groups and I want to say this at the beginning here, and then I'll say it at the end, too, because this is probably the most important single sentence that I want to say. And that is that our best shot, in my opinion, at a thriving world for humanity is a global, decentralized solutions network based on truth, freedom, and skillful collaboration. And that's one of the reasons I was so thrilled to be invited to participate with you guys today, because that's exactly what you're doing with the uh, Freedom Cells. It's just what we're doing with uh, the Thrive Solutions Hub. And your activity and ours are really complementary. And as I'm listening to the other speakers and so forth, uh, it's just really fulfilling to me in alignment with my vision of what it is that Thrive On can uh, help to offer to this incredibly timely global decentralized solutions network. So the, I'm going to share my screen for a little bit. I want to show, uh, share a few slides. So let me go to this here. I'll just share a little while you're getting that set up. 
uh, let us know if you have any technical issues and we'll, we can help uh, step okay. you through. I think I'm through the process here and let's see if this works. We use StreamYard for anyone out there that produces content. It's a great tool that we do for interviews and it's also great for virtual conferences as well. I don't think it's shown up on our end yet. As soon as we get it up, the producer will, will fire up the slides there. Sometimes Chrome or Brave browser uses a little bit better, works a little bit better. And folks, if you haven't checked out uh, Foster's work at Thrive, you can go to thriveon.com and uh, please use our link as well at uh, thegreaterreset.org. Support our work link. All right, looks like we got it going. Okay, great. So what I wanted to talk about today is proven principles and processes for effective solutions groups. So I don't need to tell you guys, I think this is where we are. We're at the fork in the road and we go one direction and it's really grim and we go the other direction and we can thrive beyond our imagining. It's literally, as Bucky Fuller said, it's the moment of choosing oblivion or utopia. Now, for me on the left, that's the great reset. That's where that will lead. The proof is in throughout history. And on the right, this is the greater reset. This is exactly what we're all uh, up to here. So this week, I've been having a very interesting time. Literally, I've got two big monitors at my desk, and I put the, the great reset on the left monitor and the greater reset on the right monitor. And I've literally been watching the, uh, the feeds from both of these conferences, and it is so surreal you know here we have this this greater reset uh this great reset conference where they've got all the big names they've got gore and gates and they've got merkel and macron and they've got lagarde and netanyahu and tedros and xi jinping wow what a powerful group of people so what are they up to so i started making a little comparison and uh, what I'm seeing when I'm watching the Great Reset is tremendous excitement about vaccinating everybody on the planet. Then I go to the Greater Reset and they're talking about health freedom. Then I go back and they're talking at the Great Reset about the fantastic artificial farms, the, the you know, intelligent drone-operated farms growing all this artificial food and we, we'll get our nutrition from pills and everything. And then I turn to the greater reset and lo and behold, we've got people like your last amazing speaker talking about organic food and permaculture. The great resets talking about globalization. Greater resets talking about community. The great reset is so excited about turning over control of all this to uh, artificial intelligence. Now, I'm a fan of artificial intelligence as long as it's all voluntary and non-coercive. Uh, but that's not what they have in mind. And meanwhile, the Greater Reset's talking about actually reconnecting to nature. And at the same time, I've heard many of your speakers say, no, we honor technology, but stay connected to nature. If we don't, we're history. And then one of the other items is that they, now they're careening headlong toward the carbon tax, which would authorize uh, the money, the global tax to pay for the one world government, which would then be a legal structure, having its own one world police force and 
voila, there we are for the first time in history in an absolute global totalitarian state. And the economic alternative, the carbon tax, the greater resets talking about blockchain uh, and free energy. So with Thrive 2, the reason we made Thrive 2 was because the solutions that we were seeing, Kimberly and I, as we were traveling around the world vetting you know, uh, over 100 technologies, we were approached by over 1,000 inventors. We wheedled it down to, to a little, about 100, and then we traveled for five years vetting these technologies. And the things that we saw were so profoundly encouraging that uh, we couldn't help but commit ourselves to making another movie. We never thought we would. The last movie wa was a, a tremendous success. It's now been seen by over 91 million people. It's one of the most widely seen documentaries in history. And more important than that is it's empowered people to come up with breakthrough innovations in every sector of, of humanity. We just hear it from everyone as we travel around. So we wanted to make the, the second one to actually show that the promise we talked about in Thrive One, which was what on earth will it take, has actually arrived. It's here. We already have what it takes to thrive. So Thrive Two is this is what it takes. And for those of you who haven't seen the movie yet, I highly recommend go to, to, to uh, thriveon.com, our website. You can see the old movie there for free, um, Thrive One. And you can see, you can rent or purchase Thrive Two. You can gift it to friends. And in that film, little spoiler alert, we unveil the unified field theory that uh, Einstein spent his whole life on and didn't get. He was missing some key elements, particularly of geometry and, and consciousness and the fractal holographic nature of the universe. And, and we, uh, we got permission, and we're, I've worked with Nassim Haramine for years and, on this, and we, we got permission from the whole team to start unveiling that. So... Uh, that's theoretical. It's really beautiful. It's very simple. More excitingly, it leads to the proof of uh, applications. So we have multiple free energy devices that we've vetted and are we were allowed to film and show in the film. We've got cancer cures that are very real. Numerous of our friends have been cured by these various doctors. Most of them are in hiding in other countries after assassination attempts, but they're very real. Uh, and we particularly featured uh, Dr. Robert Young, who's still in this country and, you know, battling the forces, but uh, hanging in there. There are uh, means of consciousness expansion in the film that are breakthrough. And ultimately, the entire thing leads to, OK, if we have all this great stuff on planet Earth, then how come we all don't have access to it? And Kimberly says, because it's all been made illegal. So then we go into, okay, well, who got the power to tell the rest of us, we can't have cures for cancer. We can't have clean, free energy. We can't have freedom. And so the entire last probably third of the film just lays out the ethical principles of um, the non-aggression principle of uh, how if we are allowed to be free, sovereign beings, then all of these breakthroughs would be available right now. And not only can we organize ethically by allowing each person their sovereignty, unless they viol violate someone else, and then they're, they're, they would need to be stopped. But that core principle is what will release humanity into thriving beyond our imagination. And that's another whole uh, book, topic, movie, 
um, in itself. But when I'm speaking to this audience, I know that the vast majority of you know that already. If you don't, uh, check out the rest of these talks uh, on The Greater Reset and go to thriveon.com. We've got a, a, a ton of stuff that breaks that down. Okay, so let me come back for a minute and uh, I'm going to talk about so what? So, okay, at this greater reset, we've had Derek and John and Richard Grove and uh, Rosa Quare, uh, James Corbett was part of this, and Julianne Romanello, Lainey Liberty, Sarah G. and Kelly, uh, Dolores Cahill, Christian Westbrook. It's just, I could go on and on. It's just an outstanding roster of names that most of the world hasn't heard of yet. And if we make it as a species, this will be the roster, um, part of the roster, a vast and growing roster of the heroes who helped us get there. So what do we do when we get off the couch? We create alternatives. And the unified field theory and the, in Thrive, we, sh we demonstrated the, those alternatives. In all of these talks in the Greater Reset, we're demonstrating the alternatives. So a lot of people, even when they see these type of things, um, they say to me all the time, yeah, but it's so daunting. The powers that shouldn't be have so much money. They've got all the institutions, they've got the governments and so forth. So what can one person do in the face of that? So what I suggest to people is a process that we call the path of purpose. And this is all laid out on our website. So just kind of let it in and integrate what, I, what I'm saying, but know that you don't have to remember or even take notes on this. This is the core of our solutions hub. The very first part of it is know who you are. If you're one person, don't think that's not powerful. You know, you were the winner of a, of a swimming race that 60 million or more participants were in, and you were the one who won. You were the one that fertilized the ovum and came here. That's a lot of intention. So there is nothing more powerful than one person. And when we gather together, it's absolutely unstoppable. So I, I invite people first to sit down. And if you haven't already, write down on a piece of paper, my purpose in life is, and then see what comes. For most people, believe it or not, who haven't ever done that in their entire lives, usually within 15 to 20 minutes, they have their purpose written down. And another little spoiler alert, almost always it comes out that the purpose has to do with bettering something and then sharing how to do that with other people. And the purpose is not a goal. This isn't, uh, you know, my goal is to make a million dollars by the time I'm 25 or something like that. That's fine, but that's a goal. That can be accomplished in time and space. And goals happen along the path of purpose. Purpose is a direction. It's like north. You just keep going with your purpose. And it's your, uh, it, it's your compass that allows you to make decisions. When you have important decisions to make in your life, you can make them in relation to what your purpose is. So, so that's number one, is find your purpose. Now I'm going to share again, because I want to illustrate some of the rest of what I'll be talking about here. Oh, I see that I seem to be sharing to some degree already. So I'm gonna, 
There we go. Okay, so the next level that we invite on the path of purpose, you can show up as one person on this planet really knowing who you are, and then there's nothing more powerful. And here's the, the, the path is you find your purpose, and then you look to see what sector is it that most draws your interest. You, pro you probably have skills there already. You may need to learn them, but the passion is probably the most important thing. So this is an image from Thrive One, where we showed a three-dimensional version of our sector model. It's based on how the, the geometry of the universe is structured, and that's one of the reasons why it's so powerful, because it is comprehensive. It covers all of human endeavor, and the, the center um, is worldview, because no matter which sector we're operating in, we see it through our worldview. So here's a two-dimensional version of it. So these are the sectors, and we recommend that people who want to work in this way use these same sector names, not because they're the, the ultimate or anything, but because uh, over a dozen groups has worked for, for more than a decade uh, with these sectors. And so there are large networks now that are coordinating using these coordinates. So it's a lot easier if you have the same sector names to coordinate with other people in other countries rather than if they have different names and a different number of sectors and so forth. That's fine, but it just isn't nearly as effective. So um, here's how this works. Here's the sectors around the outside, health, governance, environment, education, economics, arts, spirituality, etc. And then once you get your sector, then keep going and ask yourself, okay, what issue is it in that sector that I want to work on? So if in, if environment is my sector and uh, GMOs is my particular issue, okay, you're narrowing it down now. So keep going still and then ask yourself, okay, is my passion to work with meeting immediate needs, you know, getting people uh, actual uh, real food and real seeds, or is it working on systemic change? Do you work well with, with groups looking at what is the system of food delivery and food growth right now? And how can I uh, fine tune that system to be more in line with the dynamics, with the principles of how the unified field truly operates? Uh, and because the, the more clearly you have your systems aligned with the unified field, the less immediate needs, uh, they're gonna be going unmet. And then finally, the third level, is the consciousness shift. So again, worldview is at the center here and how you see the world determines how you will wanna set up systems and the systems you set up will determine how well they meet immediate needs. So here's the thing, determine your purpose, your sector, your issue, and then which level uh, of engagement is it that invites you the most? And this is frankly, most people have never heard of this third one, the levels, and it's a really key piece. So you you don't make you don't you make sure you don't have to be out there doing a whole lot of stuff that you don't want to do. There are people who not only want to do every single step of this, every single sector, every issue, every level, but who for whom it's their absolute passion. And when you can organize with a full team approaching any issue in a whole systems manner that brings in the scientists and the lawyers and the artists and the spiritual teachers and the economists and, and, and so on and on. When you have a whole system working that way, there is such relief amongst activists. 
and such joy that they can just do what they are good at and what they really want to do and be effective. Okay, so what we do um, in our sector solutions model is we we teach people to organize uh, usually in their local area or they can organize by region virtually or globally by issue or, or by sector. And then I won't go into much detail uh, on this, but the, uh, the key breakdown is that you'll have a whole group, and this is happening all over the world, not only the Freedom Cells, but hundreds of other organizations are getting hundreds of, of cells all over the world. now. So you'll be a part of some large group, most likely. Groups that I know of that started, you know, six months ago with 10 people in the living room uh, are oftentimes over 100. One of them's up to 800 already just during the pandemic. And they so you have your whole group, but then to be effective, then it's useful to break out into sectors. And the sectors uh, are quite similar in, in my experience to what Bob Podolsky talked about with the octologues that I know that that John and Derek are are working with. And again, it's not a hard and fast thing. You don't have to have the exact number of eight people, but it's a pretty good size working group. It doesn't have to be absolute gender division or or whatever, but it really helps to balance out a team for effectiveness. And once you have your sector uh, group, then uh, what we encourage people to do is schedule your meetings. So once a week, when you're if you're taking on an issue like uh, business lockdowns, like uh, mass, like mandatory vaccines, something like that on so many people's minds right now, organize by sector uh, and meet once a week in your sector and think, okay, what's the most effective thing that I can do? What information do we need? What strategies do we need? And come up with your best effort each week. And then you, uh, you as a group, you select someone to represent that group with what we call the synergy team. And on in our community so far, just like, like as a as a prototype, uh, the synergy team would meet on Sunday night, and representatives from each of the operative sectors would come together and uh, and discuss what's going on in each of the sectors. And then there would be a whole systems brainstorm where I say, okay, how can we this sector work with that sector, and how can we help each other out with this? And then each sector member would go back to their sector and report on that information. So now you've got a vector equilibrium. Um, you've got the natural geometry of sectors. And now you've got a toroidal uh, human system. You've got a communication system where there's no authoritarian structure, um, but there is uh, leadership emerges. And then a, a really key part that I'll go into later on is uh, there are key breakdowns like decision making. How do you deal with uh, autocrats? Um, how do you, um, well, I, I'll, I'll, I won't dive into it now. We'll get into that in just a minute. But the key thing is that when you've got the whole group, you've got the sector groups, and you've got a synergy team, now you can operate on all the effective levels. And these groups can be happening all over the world. There are currently in the Thrive-inspired but self-created sector solutions network, there's over 1,100 groups in close to 90 countries. And so, so groups get to find each other through our solutions hub and then share best practices. 
What we what Kimberly and I found as we traveled around is that everywhere we went, there people were recreating the wheel. People were, you know, starting from scratch trying to figure out what a chemtrail was or you know, how to create a, a GMO petition or, or a boycott or, or whatever. And so we built this hub in order that people could uh, find each other, find a group, uh, start a group, and also upload um, their most effective resources. Uh, here's an example in the, the, uh, the arts. Well, we have 10 steps for most effective solutioning, the type of thing I was talking about. That's one of the ones we uploaded. Then we, there's the arts sector where they uploaded things. There. Oop, sorry. There seems to be a little delay here. Okay, so are you seeing the economics one? Uh, if you are, the, this is an example of some of the things that people uploaded uh, for economics resources. Okay, and then I was talking about uh, process tips because the, one of the main challenges is that groups break down for the same reasons over and over again. And so uh, I won't go into depth on this, but this is some of the key stuff that we have developed over the last decade and used with groups all over the world. And people just keep going, oh my gosh, we never thought of that particular part or that would have saved our group the first time around. So here's some of the things. Don't just you know wait till someone feels like having the next meeting. Schedule it and ideally schedule a month in advance so that people are actually operating without having to reach out to everybody every time. So schedule your meetings. Uh, Decision-making, uh, what we found is that as, as best as possible, most people, if they go for consensus, but use majority vote, if they have to, if, if things are totally gridlocked, but here's the key, whoever got voted down, you know, one or more people, their perspective needs to stay on the table of that issue. And every single meeting, it comes back up for discussion to find out whether or not that person has finally seen the light or whether or not they were the only ones who saw the light in the first place. And people start to come around to their point of view. So people can potentially be outvoted if they need to be in order for things to move forward, but they're not excluded. The discussion always continues. Next one is conflict resolution. Uh, that I was a conflict resolution facilitator in Silicon Valley for 15 years. So I have a lot of experience in that, which I brought to groups showing them the usual pitfalls uh, and how to get through them. Uh, an example of that is Many of the greatest activists are, are really autocrats. They, they operate best on their own. So when they come into meetings, they hate to be there. Most people hate to have them be there because they try to take over all the time. <laughs> so I, I've had a lot of success with encouraging groups and doing it myself to, to meet with those autocrats and, and say, you know, you, you're a fabulous contributor to this cause. Um, but you're not obviously not happy in the meetings. A lot of people aren't happy having you there. There's a, there, it's not a fit. So how about if you just go out and operate on your own and anytime you want, if you need help, if you have information you want to bring back to the group, just let us know and you can come and, and download at a meeting. And the look of relief on their faces <laughs> that just liberated them was so exciting uh, to see. 
Uh, so that's one of them, the key tips. Another is celebrate every little win that you have. When you have a success, celebrate as a team. You know, bring in some some punch and snacks, you know, get together and just party a little bit. Have a good time with each other because that helps people to keep want to want to keep going instead of uh, instead of getting burned out. OK, I'm going to come back out of here so you can bring me back to full screen, uh, Mr. Producer. And. I want to I want to flesh this out a little bit for you because this is I've been talking very abstractly um, and that's really important to have the abstractions. But what I'm noticing and I'm, I, I was on a freedom cell call a few weeks ago and I, I was seeing the same patterns there that I'm seeing with other groups that right now there's a huge burst of energy for creating freedom groups for obvious reasons that I don't need to go, go into with this group. It used to be there would be more would be uh, a, an organic farming group or a pesticide group or a chemtrail group or a banking scheme group or something like that. Now what I'm seeing mostly is just freedom groups, just like you do with your freedom cells, because people are recognizing that freedom is the fundamental principle. And then all of the other problems are simply, um, not simply, but uh, they're fundamentally uh, just breakdowns in freedom. So they're subgroups of the freedom issue. So um, what I've noticed with groups is that as they're forming, and it's just in Northern California, I've been invited to visit a number of these groups. And so I've been able to check in on them recently. And what I'm seeing almost without exception is that the groups are first of all forming around information. So Lot, they're bringing in experts. There's a lot of experts in each group and they're bringing in vital information and doing presentations so that people can grasp enough of the whole picture to then be effective with their solution. Then once people have grasped what's really going on enough, the next natural step is self-defense. <laughs> it's protection from this fascist takeover at a global scale. And so literally people are starting with, uh, with prepping you know, getting food and water, making sure that they have shelter, getting, making sure that they, they know the people in their community who are of like mind so that they can band together in, in preparation and also in, in emergencies. Um, and then they're also prepping in terms of uh, bringing in self-defense experts and uh, firearms experts and so forth, not to go out and start a war, but to protect ourselves. You know, it's very real. If you have, if you studied at all the history of, of China, Vietnam, uh, uh, Soviet Union, Brazil, Chile, I, I could go on and on. There's over 22. This has happened over 22 times before. The evidence for this scientific experiment is in. It's just that it's not being taught in our universities uh, these days, quite the opposite. So once you have enough information, then you want to learn how to protect yourself and your community. So that's fantastic. And those are the kinds of resources that we've got groups now sharing with each other. Um, and we, hopefully we can help uh, in cooperation with the Freedom Cell um, website to spread the word on all this valuable information that you're getting from these other presentations would, would be uploaded to central archives where you can search by sector, you can search by issue uh, and just have it right away rather than sending, spending weeks, months, a lot of money trying to track down the information and the, and the expertise. 
So um, once you have the information and once you're kind of squared away on protection, then what I notice is next is taking action. Uh, I was a highly trained martial artist myself in, in Tai Chi, um, karate, and then 15 years in Aikido. So, uh, and our security team has also trained me a lot in situational awareness. And all my teachers say the first most important thing in protecting yourself and your loved ones is an accurate assessment of your reality. Because <laughs> if you don't know that you're being attacked from the front and the back and you protect just against the front, you're, you're out of the game. So, um, in terms of taking action, that's why I think the single most powerful thing we can do right now is get really effective in our local groups, coordinate with, with uh, regional and global groups, um, because with the kind of mechanisms that we're all developing, we can not only accelerate the process, but we can accelerate the numbers of connected support just geometrically very quickly. So I want to give you a couple of examples of success. One of the reasons I'm so excited about this is, is both Kimberly and I have been fortunate enough to have been very successful in numerous major activism projects in our lives. And so we got to see, okay, what are the principles of success? And the first one that I want to share is that when there's a major problem, in my experience, it's virtually always, if not always, a breakdown in the wholeness of a natural system. And that natural system could be a natural permaculture ecology. It could be a natural uh, truth media uh, network. It could be uh, a, a natural um, education system based on the, the passion for learning uh, uh, on, based on the kids. When all that breaks down, and it's all broken down now, uh, it, it's a breakdown in the wholeness of what would be a natural system, just like a natural economy. It's not a planned state intervention economy. It's billions of voluntary transactions across the globe every day. That's, it's like a climate. That, that happens naturally and, and thrives. Not always easy, but, but it's natural. So we can align with it and, and thrive. So, so since all the problems are breakdowns in the wholeness of a natural system, there has to be because most of those breakdowns in the wholeness of natural systems are intentional on the part of people who want to control all of us and have been working on that agenda for centuries. So in order to conceal the natural wholeness of the system, there's always a big lie. The lie that we have to make up fiat money, the, the lie that the state needs to intervene and plan the economy. The lie that without artificial pesticides and fertilizers, you can't grow uh, crops and, and so forth. There's always a big lie. And I've researched this all for 30 years. At the, at the top, that lie is intentional. They know absolutely that they're breaking down the wholeness of natural systems. And I've got binders full of quotes from the perpetrators themselves describing, like Henry Kissinger describing, well, you can take over the food system with the GMOs and the pesticides, then we can control people. It's intentional at the top. So if you can get to the big lie, then what you can do is you can plant and grow the seed truth that can enable the solution. And here's an example. Um, like 40 years ago, I 
had a little ranch uh, up in La Honda, California, beautiful place up in the in the mountains overlooking the Pacific Ocean and so forth. And and uh, all the local landowners were called to a, uh, a town hall meeting and our congressman was there. So uh, and this happened to be a guy that I uh, liked quite a bit. I had never met him before, but so so we had this meeting and all these farmers and ranchers and everything came to the meeting. And so he made this announcement that he, you know, kind of thanks for taking care of the land all these years. And the good news is we're going to pay you for your land. The, what you, the news you might not um, be comfortable with right away is we're going to take your land. And they were going to take all of the land from just south of the Golden Gate Bridge all the way to Santa Cruz and west of the, the Skyline Ridge, the mountains, all the way to the ocean. They were The government was going to take it and they were going to make a park out of it. Well, parks are wonderful. Aren't? Well, California has more parks than any state in the union already. So we got a little suspicious. And so we started having these meetings. Our second meeting, most of the farmers came with shotguns and across, sat across their laps. And they made it very clear in their public hearing that it was over their dead bodies that their fourth, fifth generation ranch was going to be taken by the government. So, so it, it started getting pretty heated. And I just thought, you know, this doesn't make any sense. And all of a sudden I had an epiphany. I remembered that, that um, the president shortly before then had been shut down in trying to get, um, to get offshore drilling going right off of our coast. And I thought, oh, maybe that's it. So I got another friend and he and I went down to the geological survey in Menlo Park and we spent two days researching what was the microfilm in those days, uh, researching to see if there were any oil and gas research maps that might match the map of what the land that they wanted to take. And sure enough, we found it on the second day and it was an exact overlay. So we made those old, you know, plastic foils and we came and we did a, a slide presentation for the next meeting when the uh, when the the congressperson was there because it is an old strategy that, that the the uh, government will take your money to buy your land and then they'll uh, lease most of it out to the the mega corporations who will not only destroy the land but make mega profits on what used to be yours. Um, so it turns out this is exactly what they I suspected they were doing in the map really confirmed it. So we gave this talk and I, I was watching the congressman very closely to see how he reacted and literally his jaw dropped and he stood up and he said, Foster, I promise you, I did not know this. He said, I will go back to Washington and do whatever I can to stop this. And we never heard from them again. That was millions of acres that they were going to take all because we found the seed truth and he knew that we would publicize it. It would ruin his political career. It would go right up to the president. So that's one example. And then the another example that I wanted to, to give you uh, that relates more to the solutions hub themselves is actually the first time we used our sector solution model. We had developed this model and we were gonna launch it with Thrive One. But then, um, and that launched in 2011. In 2007, when we were working on the film, we started getting sprayed in Northern California. That night, these planes would drone over our heads. Uh, and the announcement was just, don't worry about it. 
Uh, it's just to, you know, to help out our agriculture, but it would be a good idea to stay inside and close the windows. <laughs> yeah. So within a few days, you know, insects started dropping in mass. Fish were, were washing up on the shores of the stream, the local streams. Uh, babies were being taken to the hospitals and so forth. So activists were running around going, what the heck is this? But not having any success. And uh, Kimberly finally came to me and she said, why don't we invite 30 or so local activists to our home, show them this sector solutions model and see if that would help. So we, we did. Next night we had a town hall meeting. 300 people came, a lot of information delivered about what was going on. We introduced the sector solutions model, had 13 sign up tables outside for when people left and virtually everyone signed up on one of these teams. And then we were off to the races. We started scheduling these regular meetings, having the, these, these feedback. And so the, we sent the scientists to New Zealand where something like this had already happened before. We had the doctors working on, on the health aspect of it. We had the, the, um, the lawyers were started preparing lawsuits. The media people started doing you know, documentaries and flyers and so forth. It was phenomenal. Uh, and the long and short of it is that within six months, we stopped cold what turned out to be exactly what Kimberly and I had suspected, but didn't feel we could really say until we actually knew, which was a billion dollar plan by Bush Jr. appropriated a billion dollars from Homeland Security to, to spray, I think probably the Democrats in, in uh, but really all of us in Northern California for up to nine months a year. And they were authorized for 10 years renewable. So this is how nasty the plan was. And I warned people, I said, listen, we've got to find out what was in that spray because there's a whole depopulation agenda. And when we found out, sure enough, there were 10 chemicals, six of them were, were really toxic, and there were carcinogens, mutagens, and endocrine disruptors. So it was absolutely what we were afraid of. And we found the perpetrators who had the company and the spray planes. And, the good news is we stopped them and created a network in Northern California. They tried two other times, different strategies, but we already had our network. We could just send out an email and immediately we were on top of them. We won the two lawsuits uh, and, and Schwarzenegger, who was president at that time, you know, before the first lawsuit was announced an hour before that he'd obviously been tipped off. He all of a sudden joined our side. So anyway, the, I could go on. We, we ended up coaching groups around the world. Um, a GMO group in uh, in Denver that was very successful in, in getting labeling, uh, a, a group in Maui that uh, ended the, the glyphosate spray over there near the schools and all that stuff. So this is a very proven model. And uh, so the, the key at this point, in my mind, is to have us all interconnected to whatever degree we want to be. The key once we establish these networks of networks is that the coordinators of the networks can all be in touch with each other very quickly and people can send communications to the coordinators networks and then each coordinator with their group can decide whether the, whether they want to disperse that information to the group or not. It might not be aligned with their values. It might be just overwhelming. They might know it already, or it might be exactly what they've needed. So the key is that each network is a network of trust, and whoever has built that trust needs to keep that trust by gating any, any information that comes into that network. So 
Um, I won't go any more into the specific strategies and tactics, but that re really what I'm wanting to say is that the, the problems in pulling this off are not infinite. It's actually a closed set that a number of us have been working on for a long time. Um, and we, we feel like we've found the infrastructure and the processes that can make this work. And that's something that, that to whatever degree this is new to people, Thrive can bring this. And we're going to, our Solutions Hub, I was showing you pictures of the old one. Um, that's still up at thrivemovement.com. We're still working on the software integration for the new one. And unfortunately, it's probably going to be another 60 days before it's up. You can go already to the, the thriveon.com and go to the tab that says Solutions Hub, and you can start in on what I described as the path of process. And you can read descriptions of how to, how to start a group, how to join a group, how to operate one of these solutions group um, with effective ways. So um, I guess the last thing that I, I want to say is to just reiterate what I showed you at the beginning If you can see this, uh, if you can share my screen again, producer, the, yeah, this is the most important thing that I can say today. Our best shot at a thriving world for humanity, in my opinion, <laughs> is a global decentralized solutions network based on truth, freedom, and skillful collaboration. Okay, thanks, Derek. So the, the final thing that, that I want to suggest is that for those of you who haven't, uh, go to thriveon.com um, and uh, watch Thrive 1 for free. If you want to watch Thrive 2, if you haven't yet, please go through uh, Derek's network. We have a, a, a global network of over 2,000 affiliates who are getting compensated, we feel very appropriately, uh, for being willing to trust this movie enough to spread it to their network. So if uh, affiliates can make 20% on your viewing of the movie, so support the Freedom Cells by, uh, if you want to watch the movie, see it through their link that they can tell you more about. And then also, if all of this interests you, I have a, a weekly show called the, the Freedom Portal, a subscription show where we deal with all these issues. And, and there are several thousand people participating in that. And we're in the process of integrating that uh, seamlessly with the Solutions Hub so that the Freedom Portal provides the conversation where we can really dive into these issues, get the information, you know, uh, talk with each other. And then uh, move to when you move to action, then you go to the Solutions Hub. But we're still connected, even more vastly connected across the world. So I'll put several other uh, of these links uh, to the old site also for if you want to see the old resource tree and the um, the old solutions hub and so forth. I'll I'll put that in the in the chat. But thank you for listening. It's absolute privilege to get to participate with this particular network, and we already have what it takes to thrive. Now it's just a matter of enjoying ourselves, keep, uh, keeping ourselves healthy and loving one another as we do this. We can get her done. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Foster. Foster, that was great. Great tip. Yeah, thanks. Very much appreciated. All right, thank you for joining us. Wow, that was awesome. Um,
Well, we did it, man. We made it through. Today has been almost four hours today on this bonus day. That's been uh, just, I'd say, phenomenal for everything we have going on. All the links that Foster mentioned, including the links to the Solutions Hub, the Resources for Effective Action, we're going to go ahead and put those on the website. And uh, I just want to say a couple of things. I guess, John, we can talk about the website and the changes and sort of where this is going before we do our closing thoughts, because I do want everybody to be aware of it. If you, again, we have day five, day one through five already posted on the website. You can see the full replays with the description of the talks, the link to Odyssey Float, the link to the Spanish translations when we have them. We'll link to the German translations now that we're getting them. Somebody earlier said they could do French translations. I can't remember where I saw that, but whoever you are, feel free to do it and reach out to us. So we're going to have all that. And over the coming days and weeks, the website's going to start to shift to become a similar to what uh, Foster's talking about and what they're doing at thriveon.com is a hub for various solutions and resources related to the topics and the different themes that we explored. And we, I know that John, when we want this to kind of just be a, a rolling, we don't want the energy to stop here, the momentum to stop here. We, we're talking about a lot of different ideas. We're going to get our team together, our team of volunteers. And because of you guys, we've been able to sell shirts and raise some money, which means that we can actually take things up a notch and and pay some of these volunteers and do even better work and do more events and, and turn this into maybe a regular series of interviews with solutions, you know, speakers focused on solutions as we build towards our upcoming event in May. Uh, anything you want to add to that, John, about just kind of the, the, the momentum and the shift that we're going to take with the greater reset name and movement? Uh, yeah, but first I want to... Um just riff a little on what on Foster's presentation, because I think it was really valuable for the work that we're doing and for folks in the Freedom Cell Network, because he presented some solid strategies for organizing. And a lot of people aren't familiar or well-versed or trained in organizing. It's, it's a pretty particular skill and um, a, a pretty particular talent that a, a lot of people are lacking, but it's absolutely critical. And Derek, I appreciate that you point this out often. And I had this revelation as, as after the Ron Paul campaign in 2007, 2008. And I realized like, there's already enough of us out there if we just get organized. Right. And that's the same thing Foster's riffing on saying, you know, Thrive One was what does it take? And Thrive Two is like, this is what it takes. It takes community and numbers. So, the strategies that he laid out and the tips that he shared about having a regular meeting, don't just wait, like don't just host the meeting. And then, and then it's like, well, when are we going to get together? I don't know. It's like, we get together the third Thursday of every month, right? Having systems in place to help facilitate decision-making, whether it's sociocracy, holacracy, consensus, I don't think a 50% plus one is a good idea, but if that's what you want to do, go ahead and also having systems in place for conflict re resolution, like the whole Freedom Cell idea I came up with in 2014, and we had a Freedom Cell group in Inner Cadre, but it all fell apart because of some personality conflicts and some differences. So you already have the nonviolent communication or whatever uh, methodology that you want to use in place. And he's absolutely right. And I think we're on the right path, bros, and everyone that's joined us in the Freedom Cell Network and Foster's, Foster's Solutions Hub. Everybody is yearning for this type of content, for this type of work. People are familiar with the problem. We've been beating the problem over the head like a dead horse for the past 20 years, plus a lot of people. Like think about Geodrick Griffin, for example. And now it's the question is, what are we going to do about it? And that's really what we've been offering. 
offer this activation. And now we're going to continue to offer that as this movement evolves, the greater reset. Super excited to see what's coming next. I mean, the sky really is the limit. Yeah, I think the sky is the limit. We've had, as I said earlier, 150,000 viewers through live viewers through just through the website. And we've got numbers coming from Float, from DLive, from BitChute, from other places, uh, you know, the couple of Facebook places, John's YouTube channel. So we're reaching people all across, you know, the world, really. We've been showing you the various cities that are tuned in. We're very excited to see all that. And I asked a question earlier that I wanted to just share with uh, the audience here. I asked it to our Telegram channel. Again, recommend getting active on our Telegram channel. If you haven't been, we've got over 13,000 people there, a growing community. And I was just asking, what are your takeaways from today so far? What are the steps you're going to take after all the talks this week? Can we each take practical steps in our local communities to create change around the world? And I believe so. And I also think that this really is just the beginning of whatever becomes of this. And, you know, it's much like Freedom Cells, John, like you've started talking about it in 2015. I heard about it. I started sharing it. And I've always tried to tell people like, look, this is a great concept, but it doesn't mean anything if it just sits on the shelf. It, you know, it, great concepts can be wonderful in theory, but if nobody puts them into action, then they're basically meaningless. You know, they're just kind of nice ideas. And I think we realize we're at the point where we need to do more than just have nice ideas and sort of philosophize about how we could potentially one day, maybe theoretically make the world a better place and actually start living it. And the ideas we've tried to present, present this week, including agorism and counter-economics, Freedom Cells. I really hope everybody will revisit them. We'll visit freedomcells.org and go listen to the talks on, on Monday for sure, as well as check out my website, theconsciousresistance.com, John's website, livefreenow.show. And you can find so many videos and podcasts and interviews and talks we've done together about agorism, about counter economics, about how to opt out of these systems and really take some tangible steps. I mean, we've mentioned that we have an event coming up in May. We want to see how we can, you know, how can we measure our success from this day, this late stage here in January, over the next four months. We have so many people doing watch parties. We have so many people coming together and sharing their, you know, their thoughts of inspiration or what they're going to take. I see some of the comments, people saying, you know, I'm starting to get my own land. I'm starting a seed exchange. I just pulled my money out of the bank. I'm ready to sell, you know, whatever it may mean for that individual person or their community moves are being made. There's a lot of shifts happening. There's a lot of momentum. We get to decide which way we direct it and how we're tuned into it. And that is the whole reason we organize this event. The greater reset is about saying that our lives are in control of us, that we're going to take back our sovereignty, take back our bodies, our minds, our spirits, our food, the land, our communities, and not be directed by technocrats and people at the Great Reset and Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates and all these other political hacks who think that they run our lives. It's up to us now to step up to the plate and really to be the sovereigns of our lives. So um, I, I do want to show a couple of watch parties, John, before I pass it back to you. We got a few more pics that I think are, we got more cat photos. These cat photos are just streaming in. This is Colorado Freedom Family again. Holding down. Yeah, that's a no. good one. And then we got, uh, I think this is New York and New Jersey Freedom Cell Watch Party. Wow. And then uh, this is Austria, I think. This, uh, yep, our friend in Austria watching. That's cool. And then I think we had one more cat. We had another cat sleeping while humans watching. <laughs> another Anar cat. And then a uh, gentleman with his baby watching oh, as well. So that's cool. Yep. And then another, here you are, John, on screen, somebody watching in their, their room. Yeah. So lots of awesome. Guy there on the MacBook. He looks, 
kind of funny. <laughs> Lots of interesting photos, and we appreciate all those. And, and again, we want to cultivate this community. So we're going to add forums to the website where you guys can communicate, where we can create separate spaces to talk about each of the themes we explored this week, health, education, obviously vaccines, travel, uh, permaculture, everything that we touched on this week. And, and obviously, the, the main place we want to direct you is the freedomcells.org network, Freedom Cells. Org is, is the website for the Freedom Cell Network. Once you sign up, I see, saw somebody ask this last night. They said, can I see the maps without joining? That's the only thing we ask is sign up, create an account, uh, and add yourself to the map. You don't have to put your home address. Please don't put your home address. And you have access to these maps to search and find people. You can create events. There's You, know, you can create your cells, and you can have forum discussions in there. We've already created a greater reset cell, and we invite everybody to go join there at that cell to continue the conversation, as well as Telegram and other places. Because we don't want the momentum to go away. We want you to keep communicating, to keep sharing progress. And we don't want to just focus, like John said, keep beating that dead horse, talking about politics uh, over and over and over. 2021 for me is the year of solutions. I think it is for you as well, John. So what's on your mind? Just feeling inspired. One of my takeaways is I'm finally going to set up Proton Mail. I've been talking about it for a while. I use Gmail primarily. So that that talk uh, that Matt McKibben gave on the encryption was was pretty impactful for me. Uh, I'm going to get some silver. I'm a big crypto guy. Maybe too much crypto. It's good for there to be some diversification. Ammunition's great as well, but silver's currently flying up. So, you know, we're here watching as well, myself and Derek, and we're getting a lot of takeaways and inspiration. And one of the most inspirational things for me is just seeing the sheer volume of people that are participating and also the diversity of the group, not only in their background, philosophy, their diets, uh, tactics, where they're coming from, but also in wherever they're geographically located. And it's super inspiring to see this be a global movement. So we know that the Great Reset is happening and they're rolling it out at lightning speed. 2030 is a big year for them. So we have a decade to counter it, right? And it's not going to end in 2030, of course. So start thinking about like um, some of the speakers earlier, Foster was saying to line up with your purpose, set some goals, Set some short-term goals, like what am I going to accomplish today and this week, but also set some midterm goals. What am I going to do this first quarter of 2021? What are my big goals for 2021? And then you also got to start thinking, begin with the end in mind, like where do I see myself five years from now? Where do I see myself and my family 10 years from now? Think big, think legacy, think big in your personal life, manifesting abundance, becoming 25 or 50% food self-sufficient or 100% food self-sufficient from your property and farms in your area, community-supported agriculture. But let's also think big, not just in our individual and family lives. Let's think big like, hey, maybe we can create a free society, the likes of which the world has never known. Maybe the time is now and the technology connects us so we can be interconnected so we can be networked and so we can work together through our strength and numbers to actually achieve and accomplish some really major stuff. The time is now. We're all very powerful, beautiful, free human beings, as bros likes to say. We just have to realize it and work together to create our desired reality because what we want lines up with nature, with the toroidal, with the land, with our fellow human beings. What they want is disharmonious. They need to use deception and deceit and false flag in order to carry out their agenda. We just need to align with our purpose as individuals and as humanity. And I think we're going to see some really beautiful things in the future. 
Yeah, I agree with that, John. Do you want to mention the uh, Freedom Cells conference call and support call? Yeah, the last one, what was there, like 120 people or 200 people, something crazy? 200 people. Yeah, that was awesome. That was the biggest one that we've had. It's the, We're coming up on the eighth one. It's going to be February 21st, 3 p.m. Central Standard, Central Standard Time. It is a Zoom call. We'll put the Zoom stuff. It's not up there on the event, but on freedomcells.org. That's another thing that's super inspiring. The freaking list of events that are everyone's just posting. There were so many watch parties this week. And then there's events all the way through March. People having an agorist meetup, come over for gardening, meet and greet. Let's have a couple beers at the restaurant. It's it's really freaking cool to see all of that stuff happening and so many people participating, over 15,000 people. So check us out on February 21st for the 8th International Conference Call. And then every Sunday, some of the Freedom Cell folks, they organize a introductory uh, laid back social Zoom call. And that's coming up today after the event at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time, 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. And again, for the details on that, we'll share it here in the comments. You can find that at freedomcells.org on the events tab as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that, John. And I look forward to the next conference call. It was awesome to see 200 people from all around the world joining this call. I mean, just, it keeps growing. It keeps growing. Last thing I want to say, guys, is we talked about Trust this week, how the technocrats, the World Economic Forum, they have been focusing, John mentioned, they've been focusing all this past week on trust, how to rebuild trust and how to convince people to take vaccines and how to convince people to stay home, whatever it may be. They recognize that you are losing trust in their system and it's because they are proving themselves untrustworthy time and time again. And we need to rise above the attempts to divide us as people, these technocrats, this predator class, they attempt to turn us against each other, whether it's over race, sex, gender, creed, religion, uh, diet, anything they can. And that does not to say there's not important conversations that we need to have around these differences of opinion or just different lifestyles and beliefs. But ultimately, we have a lot more in common than we do with the people up top who have been trying to manipulate our lives for generations. This is our moment to do something better for future generations and to decide where we take the world. And I do believe that there's reason to have hope. I want to play you just ever so briefly before we wrap up here after four hours, this clip that just came out from the World Economic Forum. This is their new, what is the greater reset video? It's four minutes long. We're just going to play a quick clip. Just look how hard they're trying to convince you. Check this out. The pandemic has radically changed the world as we know it. And the actions we take today as we work to recover will define our generation. Now is the time to think what history would say about this crisis. 2020 has been challenging on a lot of levels, as economic, environmental and societal frailties have been laid bare. But it's also proved that when we need to, we can act rapidly and restructure our lives. Recovery from the pandemic is an opportunity. We can see rays of hope in the form of a vaccine, but there is no vaccine for the planet. Nature needs a bailout. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut it there. I don't want to give them too much of our energy and time, but you see that, John? They said like right away, like okay, this presents an opportunity. Then they flash people, everybody putting a mask on. This is normal. Then you know we need a vaccine, and it's just it, like that picture Foster showed earlier, contrasting the Greater Reset versus yeah. the Great Reset was just great. I love that. Yeah, I think they have they have to try. They, they've had to try really hard because they 
it isn't in alignment with reality, with truth, with nature. But, you know, we have our work cut out for us because there's so many people that have been programmed right through mm -hmm. government schools in large part. But I want to give everyone hope. Again, I, I, I differentiated between the masses who are like just eating up the Great Reset stuff or they probably don't even know what the heck it is, but they're really concerned about this and that. And it's all been spoon fed to them. That's the masses. They don't ever change the course of history. Then we have the remnant, which is every single person that's tuned into this call right now, all the 15,000 plus that are part of the Freedom Cells Network and even more people. And there's enough people that know about the problem that have enough critical thinking faculties to recognize it. We just need to find them. And more importantly, we need to organize ourselves and take action. Absolutely. Look, I wanted to show this before we wrap up. Look, because this does show. I mean, it's just YouTube, right? But look at the ratio here. It's there's 200,000 people viewed this video. So there's 19,000 thumbs down, 1.4 thousand uh, likes. I'll show some of the comments from you. I mean, they're all basically just trolling the uh, the World Economic Forum and you know anyone that calls the pandemic a, a golden opportunity is a psychopath. You're never going to have your new world order. These kinds of thoughts. I mean. It's just, uh, I just wanted to show that we're going to, we can take it off. But yeah, just to show you as just as one measure of how people don't trust them, don't trust their system. And you know, even on YouTube, they're getting trolled everywhere, right? So even on a controlled platform, they're still being kind of ran, run out the room. Yeah. And meanwhile, our, our great greater reset day one has 1.4 thousand likes and 24 dislikes. So, <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. Thank you so much for being with us. Again, our channels can be found at thegreaterreset.org. We have an Odyssey uh, channel. We have a Float channel, and we'll be uploading all these talks as well. We're going to end with a little message to invite you to join us on May 25th through the 28th for our next event. Please stay tuned to our email list, to our Telegram channel, and our website because there's so much more coming up. Thank you so much for being a part of The Greater Reset. Peace. Peace.